All right, I want to read you something that somebody from our community chat uh, put out to us, and it was it was a kind of a, a statement and also a request with respect to this episode. He said, I've noticed many right-wing people seem to just do things like react to videos of crazy libs and mock them and talk about how stupid they are without actually doing anything. Yes, they've pointed out flaws. The question is, how do we fix them? And, and I want to thank uh, EO for you know, offering this as a suggestion for an episode, because what we're going to do today is we're going to attempt to answer a couple of things. One, we're going to try to look at what are some of the core philosophical differences between people that align with the left and the right. And we're going to talk about some of the surveys and some of the, the concepts and ideas behind this to kind of explain that where, where are we coming at from a, in a fundamental standpoint? We're also going to talk about some of the most controversial issues that come up and left wing arguments to those right wing arguments to those. But one of the most important things that we're going to try to distinguish is how do you identify between someone that wants to have an honest conversation and somebody that just wants to argue? And I don't mean I don't mean in the traditional professional sense or the traditional uh, sense of sitting down and going back and forth and forming syllogisms. I mean, somebody that just kind of wants to trash you or gaslight you. Because the bottom line is part of the reason why so many people have just decided that I'm done. I'm done having a rational conversation with people that don't want to be rational is because of the gaslighting. And so today on this episode, if you stick with us, here's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through some of the best left-wing arguments and what we believe are some of the best right-wing responses for the people that you want to have a good honest, intelligent conversation with. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument brought to you by Good Ranchers. Thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description of this episode and click that circle button, the community chat button, and join us over there. We would love to meet you, and let's get right into today's show. All right. So, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, not here today. Totally my fault. I accidentally left her stranded without a car. That's my bad, but it's okay. She's forgiven me. I'm not at all in trouble. I'm I'm a little I'm a little in trouble. I'm a little in trouble. But um, we have our producer of producers, uh, Hamilton, oh, the good we're doing, Hamilton. We're doing me first. We have to do we have to do you first because we have now after a year of doing this, we have yeah. realized that when we go to Christian first, he's he's going to have a story. He he totally forgets you're here, and we yeah. still have to introduce you. So I'm here. We have Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Yes, sir. All right, now. We, we have Master Hines, our uh, mostly benevolent warlord in training, fresh back from recently invading the UK and receiving his, uh, his master's in history. How you doing, Christian? I'm doing well. So I've got two options for you today. <laughs> okay. One, we can, we can open up by bringing up that yesterday was the anniversary of the end of the last great war of antiquity, Heraclius for the win. Or I could instead bring up a tangent about my trip to uh, Coventry. Did you know that... Um, <laughs> My last, the the last place that I visited at Coventry was uh, the Coventry Cathedral. Um, that was the last city that I visited in the UK. And that cathedral got bombed by the Luftwaffe during World War II. And I was scrolling through the internet last night and I saw a picture of Churchill walking through the ruins of, of the cathedral. And I was like, oh man, that's actually really cool. Cause like I stood in that exact spot. Like I have a shot from the exact same angle that this photo was taken like 80 years ago. So I don't know. Those are... Those are the two options that you get for the random tangent that I get to go on and and my portion of the introduction. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. This is actually a really good, um, this is a really good topic. When you ran it by me, I was like, oh man, yeah, this is going to be a really good episode because how often have we seen Nick? Yeah. Like, not that I'm, 
you know, I was about to like mention people by name, not that I'm about to trash these people because like, I actually love the arguments that people like Ben Shapiro make or, um, but like, you know, you, you see like clips of the internet or, you know, or Jordan Peterson or somebody like that. You see these clips on the internet of these like figures on the right, varying degrees on the right. And, you know, they're just destroying, you know, the libs with facts and logic or whatever. They're, you know, decimating the left. But, you know, have you ever noticed that like that doesn't really seem to change the trajectory that we're going down? Like it, I was joking with you right before we started filming and I said, yeah, the the right wins arguments and the left governs. (laughs) And I think there's some truth to that. Well, I I think, I mean, obviously we're at a point where I don't think anyone would say that we're, we're more conservative now than we were during the Reagan era or during the, you know, Calvin Coolidge area or era or whatever it is. Right. So there's been a, there's, despite the fact that we have had people that we would look at um, from a conservative perspective in positions of power, um, whether it be in Congress, whether it be in the presidency, that, that certainly hasn't seemed to stop the overall trend um, in in a, in a particular direction. But I I think one of the most important things that we can do here, and and I'm going to, I'm going to list this out. So the first thing we're going to talk about are what are the primary differences between left and right in the U.S. And one of the things that we're, we're going to discuss here is a, a survey um, that was designed by uh, Jonathan, I always script his name, Jonathan Haidt and Jesse Graham. And this is called the Moral Foundations Theory. And essentially, they, they looked at the difference between what they would call left liberal conservative and libertarian and asked a series of questions. And so we're going to discuss that a little bit just to kind of get a feel for whether or not we agree. Like, is this a good way to um, identify some of the fundamental differences with respect to how various people see the world? Because that's obviously going to impact the the conclusions they come to about various topics. And then some of the topics of discussion that we're going to, we're going to go over today is going to be, and and we're going to try to steel man the argument. So a a straw man argument is obviously when you when you create kind of a weak, um, weak argument on behalf of your opponent, and then you knock it over. That's what they call it a straw man. Steel manning is when you try to give the best possible argument um, from the other side's perspective or representation of their position. And, and the way that I grade a good um, argument, right, whether you call it devil's advocate or whatnot, the, the way I will cla- characterize that is if I could make the argument I'm about to on whatever the issue to a progressive and they would find it convincing. They, they would find it to be a good representation of their argument. Then I've probably done a pretty good job of demonstrating that I at least understand on some level, their perspective and where they're coming from. And I actually got an interesting story about that, that I'll, I'll talk about here in a moment. Um, Here's some of the arguments that we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about arguments with respect to differences of opinion on taxes, welfare, universal health care, criminal justice reform, regulations, education, guns, LGBTQ, trans, uh, and abortion, right? So we're, we're going to try to get to as many of these as possible, plus any of the, the questions or positions you would like us to answer as well. So get ready to go on the, the comments section and, and add your questions again, what we would ask. Um, whether it's a super chat or whether you just put in question semicolon and then do the question that helps us to identify them. Can't promise you we're going to get to all of them, but we're certainly going to try. And what we're going to do on this is we're not just, we're going to try to talk about a good left-wing argument. What is a good left-wing representation of the, of the left's position on these various issues and why? And we're, we're probably going to discuss a little bit on what are some of the flippant responses that you get from the right? And then what are better responses, right? So we're going to go over that. And then the other thing that we're really going to talk about is what is, what is important for you when you're having these conversations with people? And again, how do I identify someone that wants to have an honest conversation versus how do I identify people that are not interested? But 
There is another very important component with respect to that exchange. Cause a lot of people think, well, if I'm not having an honest conversation with somebody, what's the point? We're actually going to, we're actually going to tell you what the point is and why it actually, that sometimes the most important conversation you can have is with somebody that is not interested in having an honest conversation with you. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but stick with us and we'll explain exactly why that can be so important and impactful. All right. So let's get to the uh, first part here. And that is what are the primary differences between the left and the right? And you could say that this is somewhat universal, but a lot of times when we talk about concepts like conservatism, conservatism in the European tradition, I would argue, is a little bit different than conservatism within the American tradition. And the reason why it's important to understand that is because when you're when you're talking about kind of the West in general and you're including Western Europe or, or Europe in general, yes, there's a lot of common traditions. And, and obviously, the United States was primarily, um, you know, our main source of immigration came from the UK, uh, Ireland, Germany, um, as well as, you know, Italy as well. But mainly what it was, it was, it was primarily European immigration. And at the very beginning of the United States, it was primarily, you know, English, Anglo-Saxon, you know, that, that, that sort of um, uh, immigrant. And so that obviously impacted the way that our government was originally formed, as, as well as some of the cultures that also developed. Uh, but even within the United States, you would see differences based off the very, very stark regional differences between the north, between um, kind of what you call the central coast, as well as the south. And so it's, it's important to understand that. Um, but overall, the United States really doesn't have much of a tradition, obviously, with um, monarchy, um, from from the very beginning, even though there was obvious issues with with slavery and whatnot, the foundation of the United States government was truly unique in world history. Uh, it's it doesn't make sense to just say, oh, well, it wasn't the first democracy. The Greek city states had democracy. Yeah, that would be a good point if America was set up as as the sort of democracy that Greek city states were. But there was actually a lot of differences. So when we talk about conservatism in the United States, it's not just conserving. Um, kind of like basic traditions of the country, right? Those traditions were actually rooted in something that was very unique from a political perspective, uh, from an economic perspective. And so you, you need to understand that, that that can cause differences between American conservatism and conservative parties within Europe. Um, the other thing that I, I want to point out that was unique about the United States is because there was such a heavy immigrant population, the United States traditionally has kind of looked at that a little bit differently than other European uh, countries and, and various ethnic groups and whatnot. So I'm getting that out of the way just to start in with this. This this test that was set up um, by uh, Height and Graham, again, the Moral Foundations Theory, you, you can look that up at moralfoundations.org if, if you actually want to go in and, and take it or, or learn more about it. But essentially, it, it asks a couple of questions. So what it's trying to determine is where you stand on six categories. And those six categories are fairness and reciprocity, harm and care, in-group loyalty, authority and respect, purity and sanctity. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and um, describe what that looks like. Fairness and reciprocity foundation is reflective of basic human desires for justice and the fair compensation of actions. From an evolutionary standpoint, this fits with the concept of reciprocal altruism, which humans help other humans with the expectation that such aid will be paid back in time. So they ask you a series of questions in order to determine your score for that, right? Next one is harm versus care. The harm care foundations gets at the human concern for the nurturance and protecting vulnerable individuals from harm. This foundation 
communication matches with the evolution of empathy and the system of attachment to instinctual human motivations designed to shield weaker persons from danger. In-group loyalty. The in-group loyalty foundation relates to feelings of patriotism, self-sacrifice for the good of the group, and pride in such a group. This reflects the evolution of coalition psychology, the desire to belong to and act in a collective, which in turn provided individuals with safety and security. Authority and respect. The authority and respect foundation is made up of two parts. The virtue of subordinates, paying proper obedience and respect, and the virtue of authority, providing leadership and protection. This foundation fits with the evolution of hierarchy, which provided groups of humans with structure and stability. And then finally, it's purity and sanctity. The purity sanctity foundation pertains heavily to religious feeling and piety, as well as the desire to act in ways that are considered morally or physically clean. Such desires form the evolution of disgust and fear of contamination, which helped protect the hygiene and health of early humans, as well as the suppression of human selfish or carnal nature. So essentially you you can take this test in like five minutes. Um, Doesn't take very long. And what they're doing is they're trying to identify what, general category that you would fall within. Now to give you an idea, uh, and I apologize, we don't have this up on screen, but to give you an idea of where they land on this, um, because once, once you take these categories it then breaks down into, so once you've answered those questions and then breaks down into, um, six other ideas, uh, or is it five? Sorry, I think it's five. Yeah. Five other ideas. No, no, six, six. That is care, fairness, loyalty, authority, purity, and liberty, right? So to give you an idea, left liberals tend to score very high on care, on caring. Um, Conservatives score in the mid-range and then libertarians score the lowest on, on the whole care idea. When it comes to fairness, Left liberals score very, very high. In fact, it's the highest category that they they score in is is in fairness. Conservatives score the lowest, but libertarians score just barely higher than conservatives on this. Uh, When it comes to loyalty, conservatives score the highest. Um, Libertarians are next, but they're pretty low. And then left liberals are the lowest, but just barely lower than libertarians. When it comes to authority, Republicans, or excuse me, conservatives score very high on this. Um, uh, and then libertarians and, and uh, left liberals both score uh, much lower. When it comes to purity, conservatives score fairly high. Libertarians and um, left liberals score very, very low. This is their lowest concern is the, is the purity one. And then when it comes to liberty, that's the libertarians' highest score. No shocker there. It's actually the conservatives' highest score as well. That's interesting. And then it's um, not a low score. It's like the third lowest score for left liberals. And so th- this kind of gives you an idea of what where kind of the opening priorities are for these various groups. Um, now, obviously, not not you know, most people probably don't fit neatly into one of these categories on, on all topics, but across the board, when you look at the total aggregate of the sort of people that self-identify as conservative, liberal, or libertarian, this is generally where they fall along the scale. Um, and, and just to kind of hone this in a little bit, the most, again, the most important score for left liberals is fairness. The idea that everyone's being treated, you know, equally. The highest score for uh, conservatives is liberty. The highest scores for libertarians is liberty. 
So that, that liberty factor is where you see a lot of crossover with conservatives and, and libertarians. That's kind of where I, I would argue Christian and I, and I generally fall. We, we put a very, very high value on liberty. The ones where you see kind of that, that departure, right? The lowest score for both liberals and libertarians is purity, but that is the, it's right around the fourth highest score for uh, conservatives and conservatives score significantly higher in, in that category than, than, uh, um, liberals do. Um, the, where, where is that? The lowest score. Yeah. So that, that's where, that's where you kind of see these strange, um, alliances take place sometimes with things like drug legalization or, you know, legalization or like removal of crimes for, uh, vice issues. That's, you know, drugs, prostitution, stuff like that. That's where you'll start to see some coalition between libertarians and liberals. And then when it moves over to issues of, you know, individual liberty, um, free markets. That's where you see the coalition between conservatives and libertarians on the liberty side, right? So I, I think this does a, a decent job. I, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that it's it's the best thing out there for explaining some of the fundamental differences, but I, I don't, but I'll put it this way. I can't think of another one off of the top of my head um, that I think necessarily does a, a better job. Um, I mean, you got anything to add on that? I haven't taken the test yet, but I probably will at some point. Uh, you know, there was an essay that was written by Nate Silver, of all people, um, just a few days ago. And he was trying to get across basically that li that there's an increasing divide between liberalism and leftism. And he actually was like citing people like F.A. Hayek and stuff like that when he wrote this, which I thought was kind of interesting because Nate Silver, if you know who he is, he's a political prognosticator. He, he gets a lot of hate now on Twitter because he's yeah. no longer considered on the left anymore. Well, and behold, the ratchet apparently has moved far enough that not even Nate Silver's, Silver is considered on the left. Ten years ago, he would have been considered on the left. He was... In, in 2012, he was the guy that, you know, predicted that Barack Obama would win re-election by almost the exact margin that he did. And he was happy for it because he was on the left. Yeah. And now he's getting attacked from the left. And he's he, I mean, he's basically come out himself and said that I I don't really fall into that category anymore. He's he now identifies as a liberal, almost more in the classical sense, but more in the classical American sense, not necessarily the classical European sense. Anyway, tangent aside, he wrote this essay and he was he was talking about this growing divide between liberalism and leftism. And he was actually trying to make the argument that in reality, that divide always existed, but it wasn't necessarily apparent in the United States. And the reason why is because the United States was founded in a different way than in Europe. Yeah. Liberalism and conservatism and leftism, leftism means leftism everywhere, right? But liberalism and conservatism mean different things in Europe than they do in the United States. Right. The liberals were the ones that overthrew the monarchies and established things like democracies and republics. And they were the ones that supported getting rid of like feudal structures and, and adopting things like free markets. And so to be a liberal in the European sense is to effectively be a, a what we would call a classical liberal in the yeah. United States, maybe not quite a libertarian. Right. A, a European liberal might not say that I want all drugs legalized, yeah. but they would say I support free markets and I support individual liberty. And the United States was not founded on European conservatism, right? We didn't have dukes and kings and stuff like that. We were a republic. So in a way, American conservatism is founded on European liberalism. Yeah. And there, okay, so why do I bring this up? The reason that I bring this up is because part of the issue that we're dealing with is that, like I said earlier, the right can win a debate, but the left governs. Mm -hmm. 
And we've talked about this all the time about how the Leviathan is always moving to the left and how, you know, it doesn't matter how many elections we win for some some way the the country seems seems to keep moving further and further to the left, even when the right wins some sort of massive election right over and over and over again. And part of the issue, I think, is that liberals in the United States for a very long time allied themselves with the left not necessarily realizing that the left doesn't actually share their values. Liberalism is centered on things like individual liberty. Mm-hmm. Social justice leftism does not care about any of that stuff. And so you, it, it was like you made a deal with the devil, and then, and then one by one by one, these people that identified as liberals are being deserted by the left, and they're finding themselves politically homeless as a result. This is also simultaneously how you get a situation where, if you actually think about it, the overwhelming majority of people that form prominent public figures on the right in the United States today are former liberals, yeah, or for or in some cases even former leftists, right? I, like think about Ronald Reagan, former Democrat, former liberal, became a Republican, became president. Donald Trump used to be a Democrat. Jordan Peterson used to support the Socialist Party up in Canada, the NDP. Yeah. Dave Rubin used to be on the left. He used to be on the Young Turks. Yeah. Like I, I can keep going down the list. Yeah. There's so many examples of this of people. Well, now Elon Musk is like you know Elon oh, Musk uh, used to be a darling of the left when yeah. he was pushing clean energy and electric cars and stuff like that, and now he's been excommunicated from those people. And so like all of these people that we look to on the right. And some of those people I greatly admire. I, I love Jordan Peterson. I think he's a brilliant psychologist. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think Elon Musk deserves the money that he's actually accumulated <laughs> because he's provided a good and service that people want. So like, I'm not trashing these people and saying like, I watch Dave Rubin stuff. I, I like, I'm not trashing these people in the sense that they're bad guys. Right. What I'm trying to get across though, is that the right is made up largely of a coalition of people that got, basically kicked out of the left because the left kept marching to the left and it never stopped. This is something that Tina uh, Tina and I talked about a lot when you were gone, Nick, and we talked about this left-wing civil war. And I said, well, the revolution never ends. And it it doesn't end when it gets to the point where you're satisfied with where things are. There's a lot of people that were leftists, especially like women who were, you know, the TERFs, right? You know, they were, they were radical trans exclusionary feminists, feminist being a key word there, right? Mm -hmm. And now they're finding themselves being ostracized by a political movement that they were a part of until five minutes ago because they disagree with the idea that men can become women. Yeah. No, I think I think that's fair. I, I think one of the distinctions, again, that we, we try to make a lot on here is, is differentiating between <clears throat> leftism and liberalism. Um, now, I, I, think, I, I think one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now, which has made... Um, rational debate so much more difficult is that the the new the the prominence of critical theory and we've explained this a lot on the show so I won't go into it in great detail but just to to lay a uh, define my terms a little bit critical theory really is rooted in a, a more of a a Marxist style explanation of the world which also combines elements of postmodernism and deconstructionism but again to make it simple. The world is largely divided into oppressors and oppressed. Everything is about power struggles and the disparities that you see within society um, among, you know, groups that they would, they would describe as, as marginalized is a result of those racist, sexist, 
patriarchal power structures. And the only way to actually achieve the sort of equity that they, they talk about wanting to achieve, which is largely measured in various forms of, of equality of outcome, is if the current systems and infrastructure is torn down and replaced by something that is rooted more in, again, a, a Marxist understanding of the world. So for, for those people that think, you know, when we talk about Marxism, we're just talking about economic policy, it's important to understand that that's, that's not the case. And that, that has been, I would argue, one of the more predominant and pervasive theories within the left, especially within academia. And because that academia is responsible for most of your HR departments and uh, most of uh, a lot of your teachers and, and everything else, it, it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that now that is becoming the the you know, predominant argument. And like you said, this is something that James Lindsay talks about as well. When, when you adopt that form of leftism, the issue is never the issue. The issue is the consolidation of political power. And that's why you a lot of times see what appear to us to be contradictory arguments when on, on the other side, it's actually beneficial because you know, who cares? This is about getting political power. And if saying this or doing this or holding this position uh, works, well, then it works. And that's all that matters. And and you could argue that in some ways it's a very pragmatic approach, especially to democracy. Because in democracy, this is a simple, this is a simple mathematical equation. Get the votes. How do you get the votes? Well, you've, you've got to promise more to the people that you're trying to get votes from. Um, you, you've got to, you know, again, if you can take from fewer people in order to give to, to more people and you can consolidate, well, then now you can win elections. Um, and, and that's always an important thing for people to understand. But let, let's let's go into talking about some of these issues. And, and Christian and I will probably take, you know, turns going back and forth on, on trying to make a good steel man argument. But to, to lead into this section, I, I want to talk about an experience that, that I had once. And, and it's interesting because I'll, I'll share these stories sometimes and people will be like, well, that, that conversation never took place. And, and here's all I'll tell you. Um, I, I understand that a lot of the conversations I get into are not conversations that most people have on a day-to-day basis. But I would also argue that we, we've kind of chosen a, a, a profession and a lifestyle where you are far more prone to get into these sorts of conversations than you would if you've decided to be like a carpenter or a plumber or, you know, whatever else it is, a, a, you know, a business executive, right? We, we work in the realm of politics. And so I find myself in a lot of these, you know, discussions with people, with activists, with um, people in elected office. So all, all I can tell you is that I'm, you know, I really have gotten into some very interesting conversations and and one that I got into several years back, this is before I was in elected office. I was, um, it was actually during the Mitt Romney presidential, Mitt Romney, uh, Barack Obama. So Barack Obama's reelection. And, um, and I was working at a headquarters and, um, I had a, a lady come in and she had a, uh, she had a, a flyer with her, like a mailer, she had a mailer and she comes in and she's very upset and she goes, how do I stop this hate speech from coming to my house. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. I didn't, I, I don't know. Can I, can I see it? And she shows it to me and, and it's a, it's a mailer for Mitt Romney. <laughs> now, now I, I don't look, I'm not a huge Mitt Romney fan. Right. But I, at that point, you know, we were, we were kind of at a binary choice. It was Romney or Obama. But I remember thinking to myself, there are some Republicans where if you would have said they, they said something hateful or they said something mean, I'd be like, okay, they might've said something a little spicy. 
not Mitt Romney. <laughs> like, I don't think Mitt Romney ever said anything spicy ever. He's as spicy as a mayo sandwich. <laughs> like, so I, I'm a little confused. And I, and I asked her, I said, well, okay, what about this do you, do you find to be hateful? Like, I understand that you don't like it. I understand that you don't want to vote for, for Mitt Romney. But can you, can, I, I need to understand what do you find hateful about this? And we, we kind of, we proceeded to get into this conversation. We started talking about, you know, values and experiences and, and uh, political positions. And we talked about some of the more controversial issues and whatnot. And, and as we were discussing, and I was, again, I'm, I'm trying to represent kind of our local committee and I'm trying to be nice and polite um, because look, she had the guts to come, you know, right into our office and, and ask something. And, and I was the only one there. Um, so I'm having a conversation and here's what I found interesting is as the conversation first went on, when she went in there, she went in there with the assumption that I was an evil person. Like that if, if I if I was sitting here as a representative of this hate speech, then I too must be a hateful, mean person. And as, as we started to talk, as I started to share my perspective on things, all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, this guy's not, this guy's not evil. Maybe he's just, um, he's just ignorant, right? And so, so she moved on to, well, you know, maybe when you've lived a little bit more life, You'll understand, you know, what, what you'll, you'll understand why, why you're wrong on this. And I said, well, ma'am, and I forget how old it was at the time I was in my, you know, early third, early to mid thirties. I said, well, ma'am, uh, can I share some of my life experience with you? And she goes, yeah, okay. I said, oh, well, you know, I, I grew up, my parents got divorced, right? Like I, I'd spend the summer with my dad, they, with my, you know, the school year with my mom and went to a couple different uh, schools and, you know, enlisted in the military, uh, married my high school sweetheart almost right out of high school. So I, I you know, got married at 19. Um, I have three kids. I've been to combat twice. I've been to 20 countries. I've been to the mission field. I've, I've seen truly abject poverty. Um, I, I know what it is to have my power turned off because I couldn't afford to pay the bill. Um, I also know what it is to be doing a little bit better, um, and to be able to, you know, provide some experiences from your kids. Um, and, and I, and I went through all of this and I discussed, I said, now I, I'm not claiming this makes me an expert in everything, but would you say that at least up until this point, I've lived a, a little bit of life and she goes, wow, I've never even been outside the country. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she, so, so I, I was, I was evil. Right. And then I was stupid and ignorant. Or, or, or I was, I'm sorry, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was ignorant. And then, and then it came down to her, her final argument and her final argument was, well, maybe you just don't understand, you know, our perspective and what we believe. So now I went from being bad to being an okay guy, right? Someone she could relate to. And then I went from being ignorant to someone like, okay, he's got some life experience, right? He, he's, he's experienced a little bit of life. Maybe it's not that he's generally ignorant. Maybe he's just ignorant of what I believe. And so I asked her, I said, okay, I said, that, that's fair. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. So let me ask you a question. I said, for the next five minutes, I will present an argument for progressivism that you will find convincing. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to, I'm going to list out kind of the various topics that in this election cycle, and, and I'm going to share them from a, from a left-wing perspective in a way that you will find convincing. I'll do that for the next five minutes. All that I ask is that when I'm done, you do the same thing, but from a conservative perspective. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could do that. I said, well then ma'am, I, I don't see how you can tell me that I'm, you know, I'm ignorant of your position. If I feel very, very confident in, in being able to make an argument right now that you get to grade, but you don't feel confident that you could do the same thing. And, and she looked at me at that moment. She goes, 
you know, I could probably vote for you. <laughs> now, I highly doubt that. I highly doubt that. Um, and, and the only reason I share that, I'm, I'm not trying to brag on, on anything. I'm just trying to say that there was a moment where we had someone that was willing to take the time and, and not necessarily willing to agree with me on everything, but but willing to at least be convinced that I didn't have horns, it was a horrible human being, and that you know maybe I, I had really thought about these things. And if I had thought about these things and I was confident in them, then maybe, maybe that was reason for her to consider what I was saying. And so at that point, what, what, what had happened was is that I, I had earned an audience. I had earned an audience to discuss what I was talking about in a position where now we, we, were, we weren't looking at each other as, as enemies, but we were just two people trying to figure some stuff out. Right? And, we, and we had a good conversation. Now, do, do I think she you know, changed her mind on who she was voting for? No. Uh, but she at that moment, she at least changed her mind on what was motivating me. And sometimes that can be a really, really important step. Okay, but you have to have someone that's actually willing to consider that before you can even get to that point. So here's what we're going to do now. In, in order to prove that I wasn't just talking crap, right? <laughs> that I, 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 I do think I understand progressivism enough to be able to present a, a steel man argument for it. I'm going to let Christian pick the, uh, the list. We, we have the list here. Um, taxes, welfare, universal health care, criminal justice reform, regulations, education, guns, uh, LGBTQ, abortion. Which one do you want me to make a left-wing argument for? Oh, that you want to make the left-wing yeah. argument for? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, well, in, in what? You want to go back and forth on this? or I just, I, I just want to, let, let's see if I can do it. Let's see if I can do it. <clears throat> Okay. And, and people in the audience, especially anyone watching from from a, a left wing or a progressive yep. perspective, you can you can tell me whether or not you think I did a, a credible job. I'm, I'm going to be really hard on Nick, and I'm going to pick the one that he probably disagrees with the most, and I'm going to choose education. Oh, education. He cares. Okay. He I, out of this list, he probably thinks that that's the number one thing that we need to fix right now. Okay, um, education. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the the best way. Um, well, let, let's, let's talk about the best way that I can, I can in, engage in um, an effective form of education. Now, let's say you're someone that doesn't have sufficient meat in your freezer. Well, Good Ranchers is the one that can actually provide, you know, an excellent solution to that particular problem. And regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, I'm here to tell you right now, the Good Ranchers is going to provide you with the best American-raised beef poultry, pork, not to mention getting wild caught seafood. And if you use promo code Nick, you're going to get some deals. So let, let's talk about some things here right now. Talk about we that. got some last minute gifts. All right. Last minute gifts coming up here. So there's a new offer. Yep. If you, if you have not done your Christmas shopping, if yet. you haven't done it yet, 15% off the top on our, on the December sale, right? What I'm right. hearing is you're about to educate the audience, about to educate about. the audience on, on a great deal for them. All right. So good ranch is the place where you need gifts to December and they're 15% off with again, that promo code, Nick. So here's what, here's just some of the things we're talking about. You get free shipping, you get a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee, right? That doesn't happen much in this world anymore, right? hundred percent satisfaction guarantee, Right. And you got gift boxes and the gift boxes are up to 15 percent right. off for right. their for the December sale. Right. So just just keep in mind, not not only are you going to get, you know, 15 percent off, you get free shipping, 100 percent satisfaction guaranteed. This is your opportunity to get that last minute shopping in. And, and look, ladies are always wondering what to get for what to get for the guys. I'm going to tell you something right now. I tell this to my wife every year, like, you know, 
you baby, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, baby, all I want is you. All I want is you. And she goes, okay, but I, I want to give you, I want to give you something to unwrap. Okay. All right, I'm gonna keep this. I'm gonna keep oh this. I'm gonna keep this. Oh my god! I'm gonna keep this clean. I'm gonna keep this clean. All right. And after we coming. all get done laughing, and she looks at me like, "Oh, baby, like something you can unwrap in front of the kids." I'm like, "Okay, all right, fair enough. Good, good distinction. Good distinction. Good Rancher's gift box. Like, if if it is my wife, right? My my number one gift that I want for Christmas. My wife with a box of beef." Oh my gosh, I can't, like, wife of the year award, here it comes. Absolutely. All right, so promo code Nick, go to goodranchers.com, right? Log in there, look at the very subscriptions they have, look at the gift boxes they have. You're going to get a special deal, again, 15% yep. off. You're going to get free shipping, 100% satisfaction. If you're guarantee. somebody like me that has yet to do your Christmas shopping because you have so much going on, I will be utilizing this <laughs> Good Ranchers gift boxes to send to a few different folks. And also, you can give the gift of, steak, meat, beef, chicken throughout the entire year. Yeah. If you really want to, that's a possibility. Yeah. So uh, that Nick, I need to point this out. That deal actually starts tomorrow. Tomorrow. So, so All right. At 12 a.m. tonight. So we, we, we gave you a heads up. We gave you a heads up. All right, let's get back to education. All right. So what is the left wing argument for education? All right, Christian, you know, this is a great argument. Let me go ahead and tell you as a progressive, you know, what, what I, what I feel about this. Um, obviously for most of human history, there was no real education for people in general. I mean, yes, if you were part of the wealthy elite, which let's, let's be honest, Christian, most of the wealthy elite for the vast majority of human history got that way because of special access and privilege. They were born into it. And because they were born into it, they were able to receive an education. They could afford it. Right. And, and then as a result, they were constantly able to stay in a position of power and influence where they could then manipulate the economy and really the entire educational system in order to benefit them and their class at the expense of everybody else. I don't think anyone can doubt this. Now, obviously, in the United States, uh, throughout U.S. history, you know, the first half of our, our country's history, we didn't have public education. We didn't have public education. We didn't have a means where poor children could actually come in from the fields and actually gain just basic literacy. In, in, in order, I want you to imagine a country, Christian, where we've had no public education, we've had no government involvement whatsoever in ensuring that the poorest children, we're not talking about children that were not capable, we're simply talking about children that didn't have the privilege of being arbitrarily born into a family which could afford to educate them because they were, they were engaged in subsistence farming. And now with, with government intervention, and public schooling, you were able to create an environment where now those kids who might have been every bit as talented, every bit as intelligent, but just lacking an opportunity, finally, for the first time, had the opportunity to be able to receive an education, to be able to become literate, to be able to do basic mathematics, to be able to broaden their own horizons beyond the scope of subsistence existence. And, and all we're talking about, all we really want when, when, when we're talking about the left, when it comes to education, is to be able to continue this trend of providing every single student in the country with an opportunity to be able to get a quality education. And yes, as, as things expand over time, yeah, it started off with elementary school, right? And then we and then we made sure it was high school as well. And now we're providing additional opportunities with respect to higher education because just as we benefited from only having elementary school, we benefited more from having high school. And now we're going to benefit more from higher education. So why wouldn't the government want to contend that positive trend, continue that positive trend of increasing literacy rates, uh, of increasing access 
to various the, the various skill sets, the various knowledge that comes along with an educational system. That's why, you know, again, from the left, that's why we advocate for a very strong public school system, a very strong, very well-funded public school system where our teachers are treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve and the corresponding pay, right? And the necessary resources to make sure that kids can be able to get to school, be well-fed, be in a good environment so they can learn. And then they can, again, be the next generation to continue on. I think when we look at that across the board, it's not just about education. It's actually about the social cohesion of our society. It's also about the economic well-being of our society. And that's why a strong, well-funded, public education system is so critical. That was really good. Although in typical Nick fashion, you could probably have trimmed that down by like maybe a minute or so. <laughs> um, that was really good. And to add to what you were saying there, Nick, yeah. the flippant right wing response, because that, that's what this is about, right? Why is the right making such bad arguments? Yeah. Why, why do we constantly lose? Yeah. On education, and this is something that I think is is critical because this this in some ways kind of dictates the. But by, by the way, I, I'm going to dismantle the argument I just made. Oh, in, yeah, in just teeing, a second. I'm teeing <laughs> this up so that way Nick can actually actually provide the the solid response that that should be given. Right. Yeah. The the bad response on the right that we usually get is some sort of com and I, I won't make the exact argument. I'm I'm just going to summarize it. Right. It's. It's usually some sort of combination of, yeah, but, you know, ma failing Democratic inner city schools and yeah, but teacher unions are corrupt and they're always backing Democrats and they're always spending money, you know, on the left. And, you know, the, the government just just shouldn't be doing this because there's there's better alternatives out there. I've heard that argument a million times, right? It's it's a combination of well, we just need more charter schools or we need more vouchers or the teacher unions are are bad, you know you can't fire a teacher. And when you look at Democrat run cities, the schools suck there. Now, all of that stuff is actually true. Mm -hmm. it, all of it's true, but obviously that none of that actually makes any difference. And I think part of the reason why is because quite frankly, the left doesn't care when you point out the fact that 99% of teacher union donations go to the left. Yeah. That doesn't phase them at all. You don't, you don't move the ball down the field by pointing out that yeah. like, that, that doesn't phase them. What would phase them is shutting off the flow of money. Yeah. That would phase them. <laughs> well, so, so let's look at the, some of the premise there. The, the premise was this idea that education was only accessible to people based off of their ability to pay for it. And, and it, like, like a lot of these arguments, there's a certain element of truth. It just happens to be largely incomplete and not an accurate reflection of what was going on within a lot of households. So the first thing to understand is when you talk about early America, literacy rates were very high without a public school system in place, in part because um, uh, homeschooling and communities coming together to provide for education to include providing for education for students that were not wealthy was actually fairly common. The, the other thing that's important to understand about this is just because the government wasn't doing it doesn't mean it wasn't happening. And, and again, it's this idea that if we don't have a government program, that it must not be happening or it must not be happening to the degree that we would like it to happen. So, so let's go ahead and do a, a fair analysis of, okay, did more, did more kids have an opportunity to go to school when the government mandated it? Yes, of course. The other thing to keep in mind here is that we have problems with enrollment even today when you have poor families. Um, part of the reason why kids are able to go to school at the level that they are right now is because of increasing economic freedom, uh, increasing of economic productivity. I guarantee you right now, like we had this issue, we, we discussed this once in uh, Bangladesh where it's like, oh, it's, it's horrible that these kids are, these 12 year old kids are working in sweatshops. I said, yeah, I, I, that is definitely not ideal. We, we would definitely rather them have a, a better situation. The question is, is, what happens when you mandate it through government? 
like, well, we're going to, we're going to shut down child labor. Oh, okay. So did the kids all go to school and make macaroni art and, and learn their ABCs? No, they, the, the family starved or the kids were, went into begging or they were sold into the sex trade. And, and so part of understanding what actually makes for a good educational environment is understanding that a strong economy is absolutely necessary for that. And you don't get a strong economy without good free market economic principles, as well as private property rights. So if we want strong education, I agree, there's no difference there, but I am going to take issue with the idea that government run schools is what's necessary in order to achieve that. The other thing that I think needs to be understand is that if you look at the public school model that the United States is built around, you're going to see two very, very powerful influences within that process. One was the Prussian model, which was designed to create obedient conscripts. The other is going to see a lot of influence from Rockefeller Foundation and whatnot. And, and there's a there's kind of a nefarious quote out there. He goes, I don't need thinkers. I need workers. Right. So it's the idea that our public school system was largely influenced with the idea of mass production of education in mind. And that does not create, I'm sorry, but when you're looking for innovation and adaptability and, and the ability to incorporate new methods and technology, nobody looks at the government as a model of being nimble in that respect. And so the, the premise that is being shared within the progressive argument is this idea that if it wasn't this, it would be nothing. If the government wasn't doing it, it wouldn't exist because we look back in history, their, their claim is, is that you didn't have mass education before massive government involvement. And, and again, the two things I would say is that's not necessarily true because in one respect, the church was very involved in it. Now, maybe they don't think that's a good alternative, but in the, in the other respect too, was a lot of the kids that were not getting an education at that time was not because the government hadn't set up government schools. It was because the family would have starved to death if they would have lost a laborer from the farm. And so we have to look at the proper causation correlation on what has led to an increase in education. The other thing that we have to respect is that if you are going to give the government that much power over education, because we're not talking about the government simply contributing money to the issue. We're talking about the government running, administering, and managing the school system. That's very different. And that is probably going to lead to an environment where the same government that runs, managers, and administers that system creates a curriculum which teaches kids that the government is the one that provides for their education. And, and gosh, the government should play a big role in their lives because after all, look at what a swell job they're doing with respect to education. So there, there's, there's, a, there's a moral quandary on what happens when you give the government that control over the educational system. But there's also a, a practical considerations with respect to, again, how quickly can they adapt to emerging you know, trends, data, um, tech, technological advancement? They're very slow about it. And then the other thing that you run into is, is again, um, another practical quandary is that when you look at the mass production of education, you get less emphasis on the individual needs of the consumer or the student or the parents of the student. Because after all, the parents don't have an option within a government system, not a real one. Uh, I once got in an argument with a, uh, a progressive who was a, a delegate and a school teacher. And he said, you know, Nick's acting like there's no choices. There's all kinds of choices. You can go to governor schools or you can go to, you know, these schools or those schools. And I said, well, that's, yeah, but those are all government run schools. That's like me saying, well, there's all kinds of choices in Walmart. You can go to the clothing section or the food section or the, or the automotive section. Yeah, but it's all Walmart. Right? Like, if that's my only option, then what choice do I genuinely have? There might be options within the government choice that you give me, but ultimately that's it. What happens if none of those options actually service my needs? Do I get to leave? Not if I can't afford it, but then you tax me to pay for the school that might not be serving my needs. So again, that, that's, 
what I would recommend to people is that if you want to have, if you want to have a productive conversation with somebody that's willing to talk, what you do is first of all, challenge the assumptions. What you'll notice in the progressive argument that I made is I made a lot of assumptions about history, about the, the course of education, about the benefits of the current government model. I just assumed them and then, and then dared you to, to question pretty much. I tried to put you in the position of saying, well, oh gosh, I don't want to be against education for kids. I don't want to be against poor kids getting a quality education. Yeah, you're right. You don't want to be, that isn't your objective. What you're, what you're challenging is whether or not the government administration of this system is the best way to achieve that. And there's plenty of examples to suggest that it isn't. And so having some understanding of those examples, and then also understanding some of the deep practical and moral problems with handing this over to the government is going to be really critical because now you're going back to them and saying, wait a second, if you care, why would you set up a system that does this? If you care, why would you deny people access outside this system? If you care, why would you force people to pay for something that might not be servicing their needs? Right? If you care, like, so see, there's the difference is that you're not, you're not seeding the moral high ground to them and then making a bunch of practical arguments. You're, you're reclaiming the moral high ground because of your practical arguments, because if this really is about the kids, well, then maybe we should make it less about government control and more about what actually works for individual students. And chances are you're not going to get a system that works well for individual students that's run by a bunch of politicians and bureaucrats. Okay, we are going to have to speed this up. All right. Well, you picked education right I off the know, bat, dude. I know. I picked the one that you care the most about. I, Nick, Nick <laughs> I, I do think that there's two, there's, there's two separate issues at play here with each of these things. Yeah. And here's what I mean by that. One is... The argument being made. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, that has its own, you know, collection of issues we've seen over and over and over again about how people on the right, especially politicians on the right are apparently incapable of making solid arguments for some of the things that they supposedly believe in. Yeah. I think part of the reason is because in part they, they sometimes they don't actually believe in it. Other times they don't know why they should believe in it, but they just simply know, well, I'm a member of team red. I have yeah. to believe in this. Yeah. And then other times they believe in it insofar as there's a lot of, you know, people on the right that are out there that they have some vague sense that lower taxes and regulations equals economic growth. Yeah. And that's the extent no of their knowledge why. on economics and taxes and fiscal policy and monetary policy and all of that stuff. Right. But they have, they're in, they're utterly incapable of defending that, that position even if they, again, know in some vague sense that this is true. So you have the argument side. Yeah. But then you also have the policy side, the policy implementation side. And I actually think that that part of the reason that the right loses out over and over and over again is not just because we make bad arguments, but because we lose the policy debate independent of the argument itself. I said earlier, right, the, the right can make a good argument, but the left governs. Yeah. And when it comes to something like education, it's worth noting. In fact, I, well, let, let, let's pick the let, let, let's pick a different topic on. Okay, here. you you pick it this time. Okay, because, and and I'll, I'll I'll finish my second point once you pick the topic. All right, I want I want you to provide a let like a strong left wing argument for the regulatory environment. Okay, so to to use the regulation, you know, topic in place. Let's let's consider regulatory capture for a second. So the right, just to finish what I was saying real quick, yeah. the right can make an argument all day long about why we need fewer regulations, not more, or why we need to streamline the regulatory code. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good of an argument you make when there's a built-in incentive to the system 
for people. Well, and, to- and, that's, and that's a great episode for another time. <laughs> like, like, I, I get what you're saying, but like, if you're saying we got to move along some of these topics, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think the point you're making is valid, but right now we've got to start with, you got to start with the argument. Sure. Right? You have to start with the argument. Yeah. So like, I mean, the, the most obvious left-wing argument to make on anything related to regulation is look, you have a span of, of outcomes that you can have here. You can have total anarchy. You go full Somalia or you can have total tyranny. It could be 1984, big brother, North Korea, whatever you want to call it. Both of those systems fail miserably. Nobody wants to live in North Korea. Nobody wants to live in Somalia. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, think about it when it comes to the marketplace. The market cannot entirely regulate itself. Can it regulate itself insofar as I go to a store and I buy a chicken sandwich and I didn't really like the chicken sandwich, so I'm going to go somewhere else? Sure. But it doesn't regulate itself if I go and buy the chicken sandwich and I get cyanide poisoning and I die. Well, then I don't have an option to boycott the store because I'm already dead at that point, right? And so you have to have some level of regulation. You have to have some sort of outside party that oversees those transactions to make sure that the person providing the goods and services doesn't take advantage of the person consuming the goods and services to the point that the person consuming the goods and services don't get another option, right? Either because they get killed by the product or because they get defrauded by the product or you know, they're scammed out of their money. There has to be some sort of oversight, right? Think about how many times we've had things like Bernie Madoff running off with people's money. This is why we have the SEC. Think about how many times a hundred years ago you had instances of mass pollution. For example, here's a fun fact. The Cuyahoga River in Ohio used to regularly catch on fire before the EPA came along. And so this is an example of government regulation coming in and helping to stop mass pollution of one of America's waterways to the point that like people were making songs and, po- and poems about how a river could catch on fire. And so when it comes to regulation, ultimately it's about consumer protection and safety. And it's not just about consumer protection and safety. It's also about societal protection and safety and environmental protection and safety. If, if you don't have anybody observing those transactions and making sure that there's some sort of, of, of quality control there, independent of the person providing the transaction, you're going to end up with, with bad, increasingly worse products and services as people simply find, find easier and cheaper ways to scam people out of their own money. So I know, I think that was, that was a very solid representation of kind of like the generalized left-wing argument. And, and again, the thing that you're going to notice in that argument is that there's a lot in there that you don't necessarily fundamentally disagree with. The devil is in the details. Like part of it is he, he mentioned Bernie Madoff. That's why we have to have the SEC. Anyone want to guess when the SEC was founded? <laughs> like 1929. <laughs> so the SEC was around when Bernie Madoff did what he did. Um, the other thing to take into account is, is things like the, the EPA, um, you know, we can always make the causation correlation arguments like, oh, there was all these problems with these river, but then the EPA came in and now these problems like this get fixed. It's like, okay, but then you also had a massive spillage in, in Colorado after the EPA did exist. And it was actually a government facility that led to the mass pollution within that river. And so the, the important thing to point out sometimes is that people will automatically assume that if an agency exists, it is therefore achieving its necessary or intended mission. And you shouldn't assume that. 
You should not assume that. You, you would be shocked. The other thing that you have to take into consideration is what Hazlitt talks about, right? And that is the seen versus the unseen. It is very easy to look at an organization and then look, or government organization and look at a success story for that government organization and then come to the conclusion that had the government organization not existed, that thing, that good thing that happened would not have happened. You actually, first of all, you don't know that. You don't know that because there are positive and perverse incentives which exist within the marketplace. So nobody is claiming that the marketplace is perfect because people aren't perfect. But if you're not looking at the cost associated with managing the organization and the cost associated with all the rules and regulations that they promulgate and how that actually affects businesses and, and how that leads to people looking for convenient ways to skirt issues, uh, let me give you a perfect example of this in, in California. This one became very popular, right? When, um, uh, when various wildlife organizations were coming in to try to protect the spotted owl, it used to be that if you had a spotted owl on your property, right, or if you had some sort of endangered species on your property, what you did was you notified your local you know, game and wildlife and they would come. And if, if this was a property that you had built for development, it wasn't any sort of easement or like that, they would remove the animal to a sanctuary or to a place where there was no building going on or a national park. Well, then they changed the rules and the regulations, right? Because no, 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 we need a regulation that actually protects, protects that animal's habitat where it is. Well, if I bought a bunch of property and, and this was my, this was my future, this was my retirement and I was going to cut down some logs and I was going to build a cabin and this is where I was going to live. And now I'm not permitted to, and I bought that property. I bought that property at a market rate based off of its ability for development. Do I call Fish and Wildlife and tell them to get this spotted owl? No. There, there's, a, there's a little comment that says, shoot it, shovel it, shut up about it. This became a common thing in, in California and Oregon and other places because essentially regulation was creating this perverse incentive where now a regulation that was set up in order to protect wildlife led to its destruction because of the perverse incentive structure. So once again, just because you pass the regulation doesn't mean it's going to achieve its intended result. People respond to incentives. And if the incentive structure that you've just given someone is you're going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars on this property yeah. and your entire retirement is gone, or you can shoot the spotted owl. A lot of them are shooting the spotted owl and that's not better for the spotted owl. It's not better for the person. It's not better for any of it, but because you decided to solve the problem through a regulatory agency, which is not always keen to how people are going to respond to something, you create perverse incentives. The other thing that is very important to understand about the marketplace and how regulations work is that regulate, like we just said, right? The marketplace is not perfect. Why? Because it's con it's comprised of human beings and what are regulatory agencies comprised of and what are political organizations comprised of who write these laws and what are lobbying organizations comprised with, right? They're comprised of the same people, right? There, there's not finer clay that we go to for all these other individuals that occupy these spaces. And so now all of a sudden you have a situation where the most powerful within the marketplace can now use government as a way to perform regulatory capture, so again, the argument that we're not making is not that no regulation should exist whatsoever. What it is, is that we're going into this conversation with a far more skeptical eye toward the government's ability to effectively regulate without being either um, corrupted through, through money and influence or with just a general lack of understanding of what it is that they're regulating and how it's going to impact real people in the real world. 
And so that's an important distinction. Again, it's not as if one option is regulate, like Christian said, it's not as if one option is regulate everything and the other option is regulate nothing. The difference is, is are you going into it with the proper mindset of understanding that not everything's going to work the way that you want? And are you being careful to allow as much freedom within the marketplace? Now, here's one other thing we're going to get to, and then we're going to move on to the next one. Another thing people confuse with respect to regulations is they assume that oversight is regulations. Oversight is a government agency. Now, interestingly enough, Christian was using an extreme example, right? Well, if I eat the chicken sandwich and I die, I, I, I can't, I can't, you know, um, I have no recourse. By the same token, if, if, an, if an institution or if a company continually poisons its customers, it will go out of business, <laughs> if not first by loss of, you know, massive loss of reputation within the marketplace, by the fact that generally speaking, killing your customers is, is not a good business practice. And so I don't say that flippantly. I say it to remind everyone that the incentive structure already works within the marketplace to try to serve your customers well, if they have options. But if they don't have options, because I've set up the regulatory environment in such a way as to make options impossible, I have actually not put the consumer in a better position. I've actually now just put them at the mercy of whoever has the best access to writing the regulations. And since you're not going to create an environment where you have perfect angels writing the regulations or voting on the regulations, then you should take that into consideration as well. And so the conservative position is to say, I trust the marketplace because it is far more flexible and responsible to what's going on in the real world than a government edict or a government agency. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, just, I want to, I want to nail home one other point on this. And a lot of times they say, well, this isn't about, this isn't about the marketplace or this isn't about that. This is about human lives or human safety or public safety. Like, yes, I agree. And I think what you're doing doesn't do a good job of achieving it. Right. That that's always important. Never cede the moral high ground to somebody that is making a largely emotional argument. You have to take it back and say, look, I understand that your visceral reaction to pollution or your visceral reaction to a company which defrauded people should be anger and it should be a desire for restitution. And that's why we have laws that say you can't pollute and you can't defraud people. But the proper way to address that is not then create a massive bureaucracy, which is going to attempt to regulate the intricacies of every transaction within the marketplace. The proper way to get at the people that are bad actors within the marketplace is to punish them when they violate the law, not attempt to micromanage the entire industry with a bunch of bureaucrats that may be no better than the people that were defrauding someone in the free market. Okay. What's the next one we got here? Oh, it's my turn to, oh no, no, it's your turn to pick. Can we get to a few super chats? Yeah, please. All right, we've got a couple here. One from, I'm going to let you read this one off, Nick. You're going to understand this. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, what about a libertarian long march? To, oh, what about a libertarian march through the institutions? Ah, Look I at see. that. I was I able see. to pick up on it without without sprechen zu Deutsch. That one's from Bill. <laughs> Thanks so much, Bill. No, thank you, Bill. Thank you for the challenge there. Uh, so a libertarian march through the institutions is difficult because I don't know many libertarians willing to put in the time. I, honestly, wow. can, can we name one libertarian? Uh, in fact, this is something that the Christian and I talk a lot about. Uh, I, I don't classify myself as a libertarian. I, I, ca I classify myself as a, as a very, uh, very heavy liberty leaning conservative in the American tradition. And I know that's kind of confusing when it just be easy. No, it isn't. I'm sorry. It's complex. Um, but what I, one of my biggest frustrations with a lot of libertarians who I really like and admire is, um, how eager they are to tear down anybody that doesn't maintain a hundred percent perfect score on their mindset of what 
qualifies as, as libertarianism. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Javier Malay in Argentina just got elected into office. He's, I, I would argue he is the most libertarian leaning leader in the world right now, chief executive in the world right now. His action on like day one was to cut the number of government ministries in Argentina from 21 to nine. And I saw libertarians coming on there and going, yeah, but I saw him agree to the Paris climate accords. Look, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. If you're expecting libertarians more than any other political affiliation demand perfection and will accept nothing less. And as a result, they're constantly fighting with one another because they actually see electoral success as an indication of betrayal. They really do like, oh my gosh, wait, that, that person actually got a bill passed or that person actually got into a position of authority. They must've sold us out somehow, right? Because the only true libertarians are the ones that never leave their mother's basement, right? They're just sitting there reading Bastiat and Hayek and Mises and, you know, and so, and look, I know this is being flippant. It's probably going to piss off some of my libertarian friends. I'm sorry, but there's a reason why they can't seem to get any sort of capture within institutions or within the government. And it's not purely because they're, they're being intellectually honest and pure. A lot of times it's because they cannot garner enough group coherence to actually achieve success within a society that requires group adherence to be able to do it. That, that actually leads me to, to, to play off of what you just said there, Nick. There's, there's also another reason why there cannot be a libertarian lawn march through the institutions. It's because by its nature, libertarianism is, is completely antithetical to, to leftism. It's, 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 it's literally the polar opposite of leftism. It's the antithesis of it. And leftism, as we've talked about many times on this show, leftism is inherently about the acquisition and consolidation of political power or, or any sort of power for that matter, not just political power of power. Libertarianism is about the individual. It's about freedom. It's about liberty. Hence the term. Yeah. Leftism is not. And so if, if you understand that leftism is about the acquisition and consolidation of power, you can have a long march through the institutions because the goal is power. Yeah. The, the goal is to seize either the means of production or seize control of the economy or seize control of corporate America or seize control of whatever the institution is that you're marching through. But libertarians are not about seizing power and, <laughs> and then, and then having, you know, the head of the libertarians running everything, right? Yeah. It's libertarianism is very individualistic in that sense. And so you cannot have a long march to the institutions because you can't control libertarians. They're cats. Cats are libertarians. <laughs> Dogs are leftists. You can, you can corral, or actually sheep are leftists, right? You can corral sheep through the pens, right? Good luck, you know, good luck corralling cats. You just yeah. can't. And, and, and so I, I've seen people before ask like, well, why don't we march through the institutions? Why can't we do our own long march through the institutions? Because nobody can control you any more than they can control me. Yeah. We're not about the, the acquisition of power and consolidation of power. They are. And so when, when you understand the, the goals of the different movements, you can see why one strategy works for them and it would never work for us. Well, I think it, it interestingly enough too, the, a lot of the people on the left that have captured a lot of these prestigious institutions and organizations within our country, they talk a lot about equity, but when they get in positions of power, they pull the ladder up to make sure that nobody can get in unless it's their ideological allies. And we don't tend to do the same thing with institutions. Um, all right. 
Thumper, the sweaty fat guy. Thank you very much for the uh, the very uh, generous uh, super chat here. Government should not be trusted to be effective and efficient. The head of the EPA had to be taken to a cornfield, shown one acre, then informed it could produce 500 gallons of ethanol when she thought 100 acres equals one gallon. <laughs> no, there, there's and, and here's an important part to understand when it comes to political appointees. Um, I think it was I think it was Bastiat that said this. Uh, no, it was, it was well Milton Friedman uh, put it in a way that I thought was really easy to understand, and so did Thomas Sowell. It was no matter how smart somebody is, it is incredibly difficult to be able to aggregate all of the necessary information to be able to make informed decisions, um, especially as the decisions get bigger in importance. And what I mean by that is from a government perspective, how many things or people is this particular decision affecting? Because what's so beautiful about the marketplace is that millions, you know, billions of people across the world get to engage in daily transactions based off of their own needs, preferences, skills, abilities, et cetera. And they're able to respond very quickly based off of what their needs are and what their abilities are. The more the government tries to interfere into that process, the more they create negative ripple effects, the more they create unintended consequences and second and third order effects. And that's why it is very difficult for the EPA to try to manage all of the regulations that currently does. One of the most frustrating things for me once was going out to a, um, uh, there was a building site and this gentleman had just been trying to get an answer. He wasn't trying to violate the law, but Virginia Department of Environmental Quality told him that he had to stop doing what he was doing or else it could be fined up to $75,000 per day or something like something atrocious. And so he stops. So he's got his heavy equipment out there and he's trying, okay, okay, what do I need to do to fix it? What do I need to do to this? And they would say, well, you got to talk to Army Corps of Engineers. And then you talk to Army Corps of Engineers. Oh, yeah, you got to talk to the Department of Environmental Quality. So I got them both out there. We walked up and I, I had them traipsing through the grass right in the middle of a field. And we pointed to a stream. And I stood on both sides of the stream. That's how small it was. And I had, I had uh, Army Corps of Engineers on one side, Department of Environmental Quality on the other. And I said, Can this is this stream eligible for stream credits? Yes or no? And at the same time, Army Corps of Engineers said yes, and DEQ said no. What are stream credits? It, it basically it, it's a process whereby if you're going to if you're going to engage in some sort of development that might alter the flow of a stream or affect the, the water flow into a major tributary that's going into the, a major river or the Chesapeake Bay or the watershed or whatever it is, you you have to make. Um, you have to make concessions in a particular area. It could be with respect to paying to um, allow for a diversion or allow for something else that mitigates the environmental impact that you're having. And that's all he wanted to know, right? But unfortunately, the bureaucracy made it impossible to get that answer. All right, uh, Gun Griffin, thank you very much for your super chat. Better messaging, left screams for the revolution. We need to counter for the restoration of the republic as our founders envisioned. Marketing is actually a significant portion of this. There's, there's absolutely no doubt. And marketing actually becomes even more important when you lose the ability to engage in rational discussion with someone based off of the laws of logic, critical thinking, et cetera. When, when it's just for the revolution, it doesn't matter. Um, it is it is very hard to is very hard to convince somebody along reasonable intellectual lines until they hit such a brick wall where they feel betrayed by their own ideology and then maybe they're willing to listen to it. We we've all encountered those people who are just so stubborn and hard headed and just so sure of what they think until they get mugged by reality and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, that that didn't work. Uh, but sometimes that's what it takes. Um, Dogface Pony Soldier, thank you very much for the super chat. Conservatives who value liberty most note the extension of FISA Section 702. The Republican Party is no friend of liberty anymore, question mark. The difference between parties uh, with liberty at this point is minimal. Um, 
uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not totally comfortable with this. And the only reason I say that is because it, it sometimes it depends on what you're talking about. Now I, I got to tell you, I was, I was very disappointed in some, some senators, uh, who I, who I like, uh, that didn't vote no on this. I mean, Rand Paul did exactly what I thought he would. He, he, voted no. Mike Lee voted no. There was others that, that did as well. Um, because this, this was, I, I mean, we do have serious questions of abuse of power and, and not even questions anymore. We have evidence of abuse of power um, with respect to the, the uh, FISA warrants uh, because they're almost always, you know, they're almost granted. And basically what a FISA warrant is, is it, it, it allows um, it allows domestic law enforcement agencies to be able to use, um, you know, technology and whatnot in order to you know, hack in, gather information, listen on phone calls and things like that uh, when it's associated with national security. Um, and, and this is something that is, has become a widespread tool that's been used and I think used inappropriately ever since the Patriot Act. And so there, there's, real, there's real concerns there uh, within that portion of, I think, the NDA. Um, but I, I do still think that there is a difference. There, I do still think there is a, a rather significant difference when you look at the party platforms between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party referencing liberty. Now, if you place higher, if you place higher value on liberty with respect to things like um, the, the vices, right, drugs, prostitution, um, LGBTQ, then, yeah, you probably see the Democrats as being more you know, pro-liberty. If you see liberty more from an economic standpoint and from a, a free from government intervention standpoint, um, I, I would say that the, the Republicans generally do do uh, much better. Um, but th there is a spectrum. And so on one side of that spectrum, you've got Republicans like Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and, and others, you know, Ben Klein, um, who I think are very good. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you got Republicans like Mitt Romney, who phew, What's the point? Um, David Heald, uh, thank you for the super chat. The numerous portrayals by Republicans and Democrats has caused many libertarians to be gun shy of anyone who isn't philosophically pure. David, that's fair. I'll, I'll say this right off the bat. I, I don't, when I, when I give libertarians a bad time, I don't mean to suggest that they don't have some good reasons for their hesitancy or their unwillingness to trust. Um, they do. The, the problem that I've seen, and, and keep in mind, I've worked with a lot of libertarian organizations, is that there's even a great deal of internal um, internal problems within a lot of those organizations. And, and it does heavily impede their ability to function. And some of that is because of like the ideological purity test and, and keep something in mind. I'm someone that believes that you should do what you're going to say and you should stick by your guns. I also believe that the, the debate is not whether or not you abandon principle. Like if you're asking me to abandon principle, I'm not going to do it. If you are asking me to take a, a strategic approach or an incremental approach as opposed to demanding that I get everything I want tomorrow, well, then now I'm willing to talk with you. Let's, let's see what that, what does that look like? And provided that I'm not having to compromise on principle, might, I might have to compromise on timing. Uh, I might have to compromise on not getting everything I want into a particular bill. Um, I might have to compromise on not getting everything I want in a particular candidate. But when there's an obvious advantage to one over the other. And I think, I think Javier Millet is the perfect example of this. There's no question that that guy is, is done more in a relatively short period of time for what limited government liberty loving people would like to see than probably any chief executive in the world right now. And yet the people trashing him the most after socialists are other libertarians that are mad that he wants to, you know, connect the, the uh, Argentinian currency to the dollar as opposed to the gold standard right off the bat. And I think we need to have a practical understanding that you don't, again, you don't always get what you want overnight. Okay. Let's, um, and, and, and oh, man, I can't even pronounce that, but thank you very much for your first super chat from, uh, is it Rio? Nola? Nola? Yeah. Something like that. All right. It's, it's backwards. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Holland Gower? 
I think so. Yeah, we'll, go go. we'll go with that. All right, we'll go with that. All right, so uh, Christian, um, go ahead and give me what, what's the next what's the next one you want me to argue? We're, we're gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep my arguments uh, four to a minute. Oh, okay. So um, go ahead and time me there, Hamilton. So we've done education, we've done regulation. Yeah. The next one that I think you'll enjoy. <laughs> Because you've made some very, very passionate uh, debates about this. And quite frankly, there's elements of the right that have seen recent like, you know, elections on this and have started to to basically say we shouldn't even touch this with a 10 foot pole. It's abortion. OK, so the the argument for abortion. All right. I'm going to give I am going to give the progressive argument for abortion. The progressive argument is, um, look, what this really comes down to is bodily autonomy. And I find it very confusing how conservatives can say out of one side of their mouth that they don't want the government to be involved in people's lives or be making these decisions and then uh, turn right around and say, oh, but when it comes to one of the most intimate decisions you will make with respect to reproduction, with respect to raising a child in a world that conservatives seem to think is, is going to hell in a handbasket, then all of a sudden they think that they have a right to be able to intervene and legally prevent someone from accessing health care, which may be necessary for their physical well-being, their mental well-being. Ultimately, this is a decision that simply needs to be left to the child. I'm not advocating in favor of abortion. I'm advocating against the government interfering in a, in a decision that they shouldn't have any place to make. Because like you've said for everything else, you have no idea all the various considerations that go into that decision. And as a result, you should stay out of it. That, that was good, but there was a bit of a Freudian slip. The decision obviously is not left to the child. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, th and this is the, so it, that's the progressive argument, right? It's the yeah. idea that this is, and you notice what the, what the concept there was, right? It was putting, it was attempting to use more of a conservative argument or more of a libertarian argument that this is about bodily autonomy. This is about freedom of choice. This is about preventing the government from interfering in decisions. The problem with all of that reasoning is that it doesn't take into account what we're actually talking about. We're not talking about women's health care. We're not talking about reproductive rights. We're not talking about your choice, right? Th that's all marketing. Because whenever somebody says you're against, you're against a woman's right to choose. I'm like, Oh no, I'm not. I, I believe women absolutely have a right to choose. Well, like, Oh, so you're for abortion. Oh, you were, you were, you weren't talking about a woman's right to make a choice. You were talking about something very specific. Well, you're against women's health care. No, I'm not. I think all women should be able to go out and seek out health care and, and, and get health care. Well, not abortion. Oh, so we weren't talking about healthcare. We were talking about one. We were talking about one thing, a, a particular surgical procedure, right? Or 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 a pharmaceutical procedure, right? So you you see this all the time. I I always love to agree with the broad statement they're making, and then I, I narrow it back down to oh, so what you're actually talking about is not bodily autonomy because the child has its own body. What you're talking about is not the choice. What you're talking about is to be free from the consequences of one's choice, even if it means killing another innocent human being. You're not talking about access to healthcare. You're talking about a medical procedure which destroys an innocent human life. And and here's the one I here's the one I really love. Whenever they use the term reproductive rights, I got a question. When whenever I hear like a a, a clump of cells or or a bag of tissue or everything else, here's my question. When you call it reproductive rights, my one question to you is: What do humans reproduce? Oh, they reproduce other humans. Yeah, in fact, that's the only thing they can reproduce through that mechanism is other humans. 
They don't reproduce other animals. They don't reproduce other speech species. They reproduce other humans. Okay, so then this becomes a very simple question. If you're someone that believes in the sanctity of human life, if you're someone that believes in civil liberties, if you're someone that believes that one of the only legitimate functions of government is to protect the innocent from being exploited, which last time I checked is what the progressives use to buttress pretty much every argument they make about every government intervention. The real question is, when does human life begin? Well, that's a fairly simple question if we actually want to be intellectually honest. At the moment of conception, you possess all the necessary characteristics to be classified as a human being. You are merely at your earliest stage of development. Because again, we don't reproduce a bag of tissue. We don't reproduce a clump of cells. We, we reproduce other human beings. And human beings go through stages of development their entire life. Their entire life cycle. So really what you're saying is, is that what you want is for it to be legal to destroy an innocent human life. And if we're being honest about what the true progressive position is, then we have to be honest about what they're actually trying to do. And we saw this in a House resolution that Democrats put forward last year in the Virginia House of Delegates, where they would have allowed for a constitutionally protected right to abortion all the way up to the point of birth with no exceptions. That's what it would have allowed for. So the real position here is what you're saying is that in every other situation, you want me to be convinced that your, your highest concern is the protection of innocent, defenseless, and marginalized populations. Well, I've got good news. We have the most innocent, the most defenseless, and arguably the most marginalized population in the United States, and it's all within the womb. And if the government exists to do anything, it is to protect the weak and the innocent from those that would destroy or exploit them for their own convenience or profit. And so, no, you don't get the moral high ground. You don't get the moral high ground on this issue. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to sit there and you're going to have to take away all the marketing gimmicks and you're going to have to explain in clear language why it is okay to destroy innocent human life in this situation for no reason greater than convenience. Now, if you really want to put a point on that, and, and this, goes, this goes with every topic that we're going to bring up. If you really want to put a point on it, you need to add personal stories. You need to humanize this issue. This is one of the things that the left does very, very well. They always create an image in your head of something, and then they make an argument. You have to do the same if you want to be effective. You have to do the same if you want to be effective. All right, what's we the next need, one? I feel like I'm losing my voice, but like we need to clip that. That was probably one of the best defenses of of the life position on abortion that I think I've ever heard in my entire life. That well, was thank phenomenal. You, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Hamilton over there agrees. Um, that no, was phenomenal. I, Christian wants a raise. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Oh, I'd love one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christian, I want you from the progressive position to defend mm, universal health care. Oh gosh. Okay. Why are we one of the only developed countries in the entire world that doesn't have a universal healthcare system? I just came back from the UK. You know what I saw everywhere? NHS signs everywhere. The United States doesn't have one. So it, it this isn't about, oh, my socialism. There's all these countries in the world that have free market economies, that have capitalistic systems, that have the type of standard of living that the United States has. And guess what? They have a government healthcare system. And it's not you know, people on the right bring this up all the time that, oh, there'll be like death panels or, oh, it'll be rationed care or like, like 
basically scaremongering tactics to try to hide, you know, either obscure the the debate or try to shut down the left on this topic. But like, think about how many other things out there that the government provides in terms of critical services. The government provides roads for people. The government provides bridges for people. The government provides a military. What? To defend a country. Well, why on earth should the government not play a role when it comes to providing healthcare services for that, for the same people that they're providing weapons to defend them from a, from a physical invasion, they should also be providing health access to healthcare for people who can't afford it for themselves. And by the way, for those who already have the money to, to afford all of the, the, you know, luxurious treatments and expenses that, that are given in the United States, it's not like that money would be gone. They would still have access to that. But for those that don't have the money to pay for the type of services that they need, it's kind of a travesty that you have people that are, are worth hundreds of billions of dollars out there in the world, like Elon Musk, who can fly around anywhere in the world and get anything he wants at the drop of a hat. But then you have people that are homeless. You have people that are out of a job. You have people that are working two or three jobs that can't afford any of the type of services that somebody like Elon Musk can afford. And so what this is ultimately about is it, 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 again, it's not about socialism. It's not even about government control. It's about access to care. There's countries in, there's countries in, in Europe, there's countries in North America, you have countries in, in the Asia Pacific region. All of them have some sort of national health service of their own. Why is the United States one of the only ones that doesn't? And so when it comes to the issue of healthcare, the biggest problem is not where are we going to get the money from? There's countries that are far poorer than us that provide healthcare to their to their residents. The issue that we have is we provide excellent care for those that can afford it. And if you can't afford it, you're out of luck. Time. That was really good. That was, that was really good. Really good. Yeah. Now tear it apart. <laughs> oh gosh. That, so I mean, so a couple of things couple of things I want to point about in the nature of his argument because it's very common. So one of the things that you see right off the bat was comparative it was comparisons, right? Why are we the only advanced western nation that doesn't have that? Because automatically that conjures up in your mind that there there must be a problem. There must be there must be something wrong with us if we don't have this thing that other people have. And then it's the idea that well there's all these rich people out there and they can have it and all this is really about is is it's not even about control, it's about access. So they're they're taking away one term that you know you're uncomfortable with control and they're replacing it with access, mm -hmm. right? So there's a great deal of marketing that is going into that argument where he, he's, and, and again, you also see the comparison to other goods and services that you associate with government. And he's making a one, one, one to one comparison that if the government does this, well, then obviously it should be able to do this. So th those, those are all incredibly common arguments that you see for universal health care uh, and actually common arguments for a lot of things that you see within government intervention. But now there's three issues with the argument that I just made. Yeah. The first one is the assumption that if you quote unquote guarantee health care, you that you'll actually be providing it. So what I like to point out all the time is, you know, in South Africa, it's written into their constitution that everybody's guaranteed <laughs> access to health care. Yeah. So obviously, like, you know, everybody's living to 100 and they're all fit and healthy and there's no sort of health problems or whatsoever. And they just have the best care in the world. Right. Because it's written into the Constitution. <laughs> well, they passed a law. They passed a law. <laughs> health care for everybody. So health care just pops up. There's hospitals just popping up everywhere because they passed a law. Right. So <laughs> the first problem with the argument that I made is the is the assumption that if we pass a law 
or if the government simply says something that that thing will pop into existence like some sort of quantum fluctuation i like i've I've got news for you that's not how reality works (laughs) Wait a second. You mean to tell me that when I pass a bill in Richmond, it doesn't automatically produce the goods and services required to make it a reality out of the ether? I'll, I'll one up you, Nick. <laughs> I've got a bill idea next year. The yeah. no bad things are ever allowed to happen ever again act of 2024. You should carry this. Great, great bipartisan. Because yeah. if, if you actually pass this, this law, the no bad things are ever allowed to happen again act. Well, it's in the title. No bad things will ever happen again. And, and so like, that's the first problem, right? Yeah. It is the assumption that if you simply deem something to exist and that it is a right, it will exist. And this leads me into the second problem with this argument is the assumption that you should be able to compel people by force of arms, to use the military example, to provide a good or service. So there are some things, because I'm not a, an anarchist and I'm maybe at one point in time, I actually did identify as one, but I am not a libertarian <laughs> yeah. either. Yeah. There are some things that I think you can make a very credible argument that you should be able to, quote unquote, provide through force, actually violating the NAP. So an example is you're being invaded. Yes, you use violence to repel the invasion. And so I I, I want people to equate government with the threat or application of violence because that's what they deal in. They have a monopoly of violence. So you use the government to defend yourself when a foreign invader, when the Nazis come knocking, yes, you use violence against them. But you do not use violence in order to provide goodies to people, however much you think that they're beneficial. And yeah, healthcare is arguably the, the most important goodie of them all. But the idea that you can go to somebody and compel them to provide aid at the point of a gun, you should not be surprised when, yeah, you do see shortages. You do see lack of services. You do see rations. That's exactly what you see in South Africa. They're rationing electricity, not just health care, mm-hmm. because that's also being guaranteed to people. There's a government monopoly on that industry as well. And so that's the second problem is 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 the inherent assumption that that you have some sort of moral moral responsibility to compel somebody to provide something by force of arms. And then the assumption that if you do that, that it'll actually be a good product. And here's the third, the third problem with my argument. The third problem is guess what? The wealthiest Swedes, the wealthiest Brits, and yeah, definitely the wealthiest South Africans, guess where they go to get their health care? They don't go to the NHS. They fly to the United States to get their health care because the United States actually does provide the best care in the world. We have the best cancer care in the world. We have the, the best drug care in the entire world. We have the best surgeons in the entire world. And so, yes, it's incredibly expensive in the United States. And part of the reason it's incredibly expensive is because one of the earlier points that we brought up about regulatory capture and so we could, I, that would be a tangent for yeah. arguably another day. But, but the reason I bring that up is because using the comparison of other countries leaves out some very convenient things about where people in those countries actually choose to go. For example, in the, in the UK, there's been multiple cases now of infants being denied care and dying within NHS hospitals, and they would have been provided care in the United States. There's been cases before where the United States government has told parents of infants in the UK, you can bring your child here and find care that the government is is legally denying you in your home country. Mm -hmm. 
And so this idea that, oh, we're the only developed country in the world that has access to universal health care, that's a marketing gimmick that I, I, I said earlier that, that, that tries to convince you that because we don't have a state-run system, that the product that the state is allegedly going to be providing doesn't even exist. Yeah. I've implied that there does that, that healthcare doesn't even exist in the United States. This is a topic, this is a tactic that, that goes all the way back to Bastia yeah. when he pointed out that, you know, socialists will decry us being against government run X, Y, and Z as if that somehow means that we're against X, Y, and Z even existing in the first place. Yeah. Well, and this is, yeah, I, I would say one of the other issues too that I, I've had with the whole universal healthcare debate is that whenever, again, this is another tactic that I use. Someone will say, well, do you support universal healthcare? I'm like, oh, absolutely. I, I believe everybody should be able to go out and, and seek out healthcare. And they're like, well, no, that's, that's not what I mean. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, and then they, they, they describe what they want. Like, oh, you want government run healthcare. You want socialized healthcare. Like, let's be specific about what you want. Again, universal healthcare is a marketing gimmick. Everybody wants universal healthcare. The question is, what is the best way to provide it? And, and, and like Christian said, and this is a very good point, simply because you pass a law doesn't mean the corresponding goods and services appear out of the ether in order to make it so. In fact, one of the dangerous things about the government providing universal health care is that you will now put the government in charge of deciding what constitutes the health care that you are entitled to. They get to decide now. And they're going to decide it based off of the amount of resources that they're managing, which will inevitably lead to rationing. Right. And then there, there's very little mechanism for determining how that that rationing will be distributed other than politicians making those decisions. Now, the, the, the other part that Christian brought up that is really important here was, again, the, the moral quandary. Right. The, the moral argument is you are now saying that because someone else needs something or, or even wants something, because let's face it, universal health care is not about ensuring that we save everybody from from life threatening illnesses or, or incidences. That's that's not it. It's saying that if, if you want this healthcare, right, and, and you can even say on some level you need it, then somebody else is now legally obligated to provide it to you. That's, that's essentially what happens when you put the government in charge of providing this process. And this is, this is one of the biggest problems that we see with the whole concept of positive rights versus negative rights. Positive rights being now the government is obligated to provide you with a good or service as opposed to we limit the government from preventing you from being able to live your life the way you want, providing you're not infringing on the rights of others. The, the thing about negative rights is that when we say you have freedom of speech, right, your ability to exercise your freedom of speech doesn't require anybody else to do anything. But if we say you have a right to health care, well, now somebody is going to be obligated on some level through the law to provide you with health care, whatever that might be, and however the government decides to define it. And so th those are very those are very practical moral considerations. The other thing that we see on, on the practical side, and this goes back to Christian's uh, first point, was in, in the UK, they had a real problem within the National Health Service with waiting times in emergency rooms. And so what did they do? Well, they passed a bill which said that nobody could wait in a British emergency room for a certain amount of, you know, past a certain amount of time. So what happened? They left more people outside in ambulances because it was the only way they could comply with the law. Um, the other thing that I like to point out is I'm not defending the American healthcare system. Our American healthcare system is, is a mess. But the question is, is, why is it a mess? Well, again, the response for progressives is oh, greedy insurance companies. Okay, well, why do insurance companies have the degree of control and power over the healthcare system that they currently do? Oh, it's because of government regulation. 
Health insurance operates differently than any other insurance on the planet. If you go and get car insurance, your car insurance doesn't pay for you to get your tires changed or for you to fill up your, your gas tank or to put in you know windshield wiper fluid. Like it doesn't do any of that. Insurance is for those things that you don't anticipate, right? It's protecting against the unknown or that which might be catastrophic. And, and that's what makes insurance work. Insurance is about risk assessment from the industry perspective. Well, if you all of a sudden come in and say, well, no, no, we're going to make health insurance the primary way to pay for things. Well, then now you've completely screwed up the model with respect to risk assessment. And so now the insurance company is constantly having to understand like, okay, I, I, this person has insurance, so I can charge them a certain amount. So I need to, I need to get as much as I possibly can because then I might have to account for something else over here, especially if the government is requiring me my insurance to pay for it. And then the hospital also has to determine, okay, I'm going to have to, because of Intella laws, the government is forcing me to provide care to people who cannot pay for it, regardless of what the issue is. So somebody can literally come into the emergency room every day and they, by law, have to be seen, have to be treated, even if there's really nothing wrong with them, except for the fact that they want a blanket, a sandwich, and a place to watch TV. If you don't think that's going on, I, my mother is actually going to be coming onto the podcast to talk a little bit about her experience as a nurse, and she will tell you it absolutely takes place on a regular basis. And all of that adds to the cost, but because they don't have insurance that has to be covered, that has to be eaten by the hospital and by everyone else that has health insurance. And again, the only reason why we have this, this preponderance of health insurance paying for medical procedures is because the government gave, they, they increased taxes to such a degree that one of the ways the businesses could entice people to come and work for them because once their pay reached a certain level, it wasn't advantageous because of tax law. So what do they do? They offered benefits. One of the benefits they offered was healthcare. Now there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that, except that the government gave special privileges to businesses offering health insurance. Now your health insurance is tied to where you work as opposed to just entering into a marketplace for it. And, and this is the part that people need to understand. It's not that the government, it's not that we have a free market in healthcare. Medicine is one of the most heavily regulated industries within the country. And the end result is, is it's more expensive and it's more, it's got a draconian bureaucracy that we all have got to work through that nobody likes. So is the solution to give the government, the, the, is the solution to give the same people that created this problem absolute control over that industry? I certainly hope not because what we see in other countries is here's where it works out well in other countries. Here's where it works. Let's be intellectually honest. If you need to go in and get stitches or if you just need to get an, an ambulance ride because you were in a car accident, or that, that could work pretty well. But it's something like 80% of the healthcare that you will receive within your life will take place in the last like five years of your life. That's where it gets the most intensive. That's where um, a lot of times when you're dealing with issues like cancer and whatnot, you need the most, you, you know, you need up to date MRIs, you need up to date procedures and whatnot. And that's when a lot of people end up dying in universal healthcare systems because they're sitting there on waiting lists. That's a reality. So the, the solution in the American market is not to leave it the way it is. The solution in the American market is actually get the government out of the way in the multiple areas that it's intruded and actually made things more expensive. Because one of the other most pernicious things that the government does, and this goes back to regulations, and I brought up this example before, and this, again, this is about putting the human touch on it, right? Army Special Forces. I served with Special Forces 18 Deltas. And 18 Delta went through a very, very extensive medical training course where when they came, and the reason why is because we deploy in 12 man teams all over the world. So I want you to imagine this 18 Delta can go overseas. And when we're in Iraq, that guy can do veterinary care. That guy can do OBGYN. That guy can do uh, geriatrics. That guy can do general medicine. Oh, and by the way, 
They can fix a sucking chest wound under fire while returning fire and calling in a nine-line medevac in order to save your life. But the moment they get back to the United States, if they want to give your kid stitches because he fell off his bike, they've now broken the law. Is that the sort of is that the sort of healthcare regulations that is leading to an increase in access and equality of service? No, it is not. But what it does do is it provides market protection from those people that have already gone through the government process. So I'm just going to say right off the bat, it, it's not that universal healthcare can't provide certain things well. It's just that when it comes to the things that you need most, it does become problematic. And then ultimately, all universal healthcare systems will always run into the same problem. What happens when you run out of money? Because the healthcare system is under no incentive to operate off of reasonable market forces, which require it to actually respond to market demands and respond to fiscal responsibility. Because ultimately, when you come in, when you come in, you're not the customer when you come into the hospital in in a universal healthcare system because you don't pay. I mean, yeah, you pay for taxes, but it's politicians ultimately getting to decide how the money is spent and how it's allocated. And, and that is always going to lead to a different system where people still get specialized care. It's just based off of access now instead of ability to pay. All right, let's go through. All right, Christian, you got to pick one for me and we gotta, we're going to go ahead and speed it up here. All right, let's do taxes. You did regulations. Now let's do taxes. They're usually considered somewhat linked. Yeah, all right. So um, obviously the, the, one of the favorite progressive arguments with respect to taxes is, is kind of, I think, I, I can't remember if it's apocryphal. It's an actual quote from Benjamin Franklin, where he says something along the lines of taxes are the price you pay for civilization. And, and the idea is, is that, oh, well, it's all fine and good to complain about taxes and sure nobody likes to pay them. But if you want a military, if you want a police force, if you want roads, you're going to have to pay taxes because those are the mechanisms that we use in order to establish a good court system and a strong military that can defend us and a police force that can pr- keep us safe. So it's really intellectually dishonest to claim that, you know, we, we don't want to pay any taxes because we don't need any of that. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You need those things. There's legitimate functions of government. And the only way that we can fund those legitimate functions of government is through taxation. And then when it comes to taxation, we got to ask the honest question, what's the best way to do it? Well, obviously the best way to do it is through a progressive income tax. It's through a system where we tell the people that are, have benefited from these government services, where we tell the people that have benefited from a police force that keeps them safe, from a court system that allows them to engage in contract law, that yes, you have benefited the most, and therefore you need to pay a higher burden of the cost associated with maintaining these goods and services, which allow our society to function and your business to thrive. And that's perfectly reasonable. And that's why when we look at things like income, progressive income taxes or corporate taxes or whatnot, what we're doing is we're, we're simply placing the lion's share of the burden on paying the taxes on the people that are in the best position to be able to do so. And oh, by the way, this frees up the people that are not able to do so to be able to climb up the economic ladder. And as they start to experience uh, benefits as a result of that, their tax burden increases as well right? To be able to pick up that, to be able to help the next person lower on the ladder to be able to climb up it. So this is a very reasonable, very progressive way to ensure that we provide key governments and services, which are necessary, not only for the safety of our country, but also for the social and economic well-being, right? And then we place the burden on the people best best able to carry the burden, right? And the people that you could argue have benefited the most from those tax expenditures. So what's wrong with that? <laughs> that was that was pretty good. Um, it was good but long. It- <laughs> <laughs> We'd have the timer up, man. I don't know. I just keep rambling. Yeah. All right, it's up there. Okay, good. Oh, he's got the timer. Okay, so all right, 
So again, I think a, a progressive would hear that argument and be like, yes, yes, that's all we're saying. That's all we're saying. Okay, so what's the problem? <laughs> so first of all, I didn't really talk about taxes, right? I talked about spending. I talked about what you get. So what did I do? I kept you focused on the thing. And I didn't keep you focused on all government spending. You notice I didn't say things like, well, without taxes, how would we have money to test how pigeons respond to cocaine? Right? Like I didn't mention all of the, the, the arguably fraud, waste and abuse that takes place with respect to government spending. I put all the emphasis on those things, which the largest, largest degree of the population do in fact agree are legitimate functions of government roads, bridges, cops, soldiers, right? judges. That, that's where I put all the emphasis because there isn't a lot of disagreement there. And so right off the bat, as you're listening to that, you're thinking, well, yeah, that does, that does make a lot of sense until you realize that the vast majority of taxes don't go to pay for those things. They, they, they go to pay for, you know, things like social security, Medicaid, Medicare, and then a whole host of other government spending, which in, in many cases, if you, if you were prioritizing your own budget, you certainly wouldn't spend money the way they're spending it. You probably wouldn't be spending tens of millions of dollars in order to have, you know, greater, I, I don't know, LGBTQ festivals in, in foreign nations that hate us, right? You probably would not spend money that way if you were $34 trillion in debt, but that's exactly how the federal government spends money. But again, I kept the emphasis on the spending. And then what did I do? I subtly moved it into taxes. And what did I make it about? I said, well, the people that have benefited the most from the government spending are, of course, the ones that should be able to, you know, feel the, the majority of the burden. Right. And, and obviously this will create an upward momentum within the economy where the people that can't afford it are able to, you know, it, it receive benefits, but then move up the ladder and then pay their fair share once they get to that point. So right off the bat, what have I created? I've created a perverse incentive structure where the more successful you are within the economy and how are you successful within the American economy? Well, most people, except for cronyists, most people are successful by doing a good job of providing products and services to people who can choose to do business with somebody else if I don't do a good job. So the only way I get wealthy is by doing a super good job of providing people what they want in the marketplace. And what you've just told me is the better I do that, the more you're going to punish me. And then you're going to make the argument, and this was the famous Elizabeth Warren argument, right? She goes, yeah, you, you had your factory. Good for you. But the rest of us paid for the roads to help you get your, your goods to market. The rest of us paid for the school system that would educate your workers. The rest of it. And she went on like, and I, I kept looking at her going, what does she mean the rest of us? Did, did the person, I, I got news for everybody. I got news for everybody. When we pay taxes and we build a road, we all paid the taxes to build the road. Right now, the company, which then uses the road, pays additional taxes because they're not just paying the taxes the rest of us are paying. They're paying the taxes for building the building. They're paying the sales taxes associated with the goods and services they're providing. They're paying taxes. They're paying increased gas taxes with yep. respect to the trucks that they use in order to get the products to market. Yeah, they're using that road more. They've also paid it more. Actually, the cost to benefit analysis, if we want to look it up from a fairness scale, and fairness is, is not just saying, it's not just looking about quantities. Fairness is, is about looking at your input versus what you receive. If I'm paying far less taxes, but I'm getting far more benefit, I get an advantage. That's not fairness. The person that's actually using the road, the same road that I had the opportunity to use in order to build a business and provide products and services, the person that did that did something good. And yet Elizabeth Warren is treating them like they, they did something wrong. Well, no, arguably the person that used the access to the infrastructure to provide additional goods and services that people wanted is a greater net benefit to that community than the person that just uses it to drive back and forth to work. 
But if you're not going to take that into account, well, now you're telling the producer you're the problem. And the more successful you are, the more we're going to punish you. That doesn't, that doesn't lead to a fairer tax system. And, and what, again, what it actually does is it, is it creates a perverse incentive where we say, if you stay down here at the bottom, we're not going to tax you for any of the goods and services that you actually get to use. You get to be a net beneficiary of everything that we're doing without actually contributing toward it, or at least not contributing in anything proportional to what you're actually receiving. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat one thing in here. I don't like cronyism. I don't like, I don't like executives. I don't like businesses which seek to manipulate the tax system to their exclusive benefit and at the expense of everybody else. So for anybody that might be watching this going, Oh sure. That's great. But I bet you love this new stadium. That's going to be going in in Northern Virginia. I will be voting against everything associated with that because I don't believe we're supposed to give billionaires a bunch of tax dollars in order to build stadiums. I don't, I don't agree with that. I believe in free market economics, not cronyist economics, but if you really want to talk about taxes, the reason why we oppose them, right? And, and the easy argument is, well, taxation is theft. Okay, great. You, you may be able to make a good philosophical, philosophical argument for that, but you will convince nobody that that's where we actually need to go to. So the real question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is the purpose of taxes? Well, the purpose of taxes should be to collect the least amount of money necessary in the fairest way possible and the most convenient way possible in order to pay for essential government services. Now we will disagree on what essential government services. I think essential government services are, are, is a very narrow category. Other people think it's a very broad category, but a progressive tax system is inherently flawed from both a practical and a moral standpoint. And again, if, if you want to add the personal story into this, the way you talk about this is you talk about the small business owner. You talk about your own personal experience where it's something about like, I worked so hard to be able to get to a certain point and now I'm being punished because I do a better job actually providing goods and services that people want. That is, that is not a system which is designed to create you know, greater wealth among society. And then when you look at how those tax dollars are actually spent, it should infuriate you that they're actually arguing for more. Not to mention that we have a Byzantine tax system. It's very easy for someone to say, oh, the corporate tax and the income tax, as if those are the only taxes. You get taxed on just about everything coming and going. And so the real question should be is like, if we acknowledge that there are supposed to be legitimate functions of government, they have to be funded by taxes. How do we collect only those monies that are necessary for that purpose? How do we do it in the fairest way? And fair is not, well, this guy has more money. Should we tax him more? Right? That's irrelevant to whether or not that person is actually a beneficiary of the services being provided. The way that we should look at any transaction is if you are a net recipient of benefits, if you're a recipient of benefits, well, then you should contribute. And I'll give one example of this, which, which I think really kind of spells it out for people. And there's been many people that have done this. I didn't come up with it, but it's the whole restaurant scenario. Imagine going into a restaurant and not getting to choose what you individually order, having the entire restaurant vote on it. And then you, you, Maybe you wanted what you got. Maybe you didn't want what you got, but it was, it was beyond your control because it was majority rules. And then at the end, they all vote on who's going to pay for it. And then they tell the, well, we're, we're going to, we're going to, you're going to have to pay for this food, not based off of what you consumed, not based off of what you ordered. You're going to have to pay for the food in the restaurant based off of how much money you make. Would you ever go back to that restaurant? No, of course not. Especially when everyone else in the restaurant has an incentive now to gang up on you in order to try to improve their lot at your expense. No, at some point you stop playing the game. And that's what happens within the American tax system. At some point, people decide I'm either moving 
or I'm not going to be as productive because it's punished when I am. And that's a perverse incentive structure that I would argue is also deeply immoral. Real quick, forgot a second to get to a question. Yeah. This one's from Rumble, uh, from Gate X Rat. When the other side doesn't accept a rational argument, excuse me, doesn't accept rational logic for arguments, then how do you argue or do you even argue at that to that point? So that that is a okay, that is a great point. I want to get to that question because it's actually our, our final point for oh, the great, day. Great. It's actually our final point for the day. So let's I I apologize. I know we're gonna to try to get to a couple other issues here. Let's get to one more issue. And let's make it guns. I was going to, can we do two? Because I really wanted to do the trans one because I okay. feel like that that's a big social issue. That right, a well, lot you, of conservatives you do don't. that one. You do the progressive argument okay, for so trans, trans rights or LGBTQ rights or whatever you want to do. I mean, this is, if you're not me or Hamilton and you're in our age group, right? If you're a pro, like, like this is like one of the top issues, right? If you're under the age of 30 and you're on the left, right? They're, they're all behind this. And the argument that I've heard from my peers in my age group on this topic who are on the left is, look, this is just about people, right? Like, like we shouldn't be erasing people from society just because they, they live a different lifestyle than you or they love somebody differently than you or they're confused about what their actual gender is. We can talk about the science all day long. We can talk about the biology all day long. That's a separate debate here. What we shouldn't be doing is discriminating against people, though, for things that they can't control. And- at the end of the day, who gets hurt when you allow gay people to marry or who gets hurt when you allow a trans person to, you know, change their driver's license? Nobody does. And so it's the reason that the left calls the right bigots on this is because they see the the overt hostility directed towards trans people or gay people. And what what they really see is is almost like genocidal level rhetoric where where they, they want to wipe these people out of society they want to entirely remove them from society we do so much to promote all sorts of other different lifestyles and beliefs and actions in society and people clap and cheer it on but then those same people want to you know ban books from libraries or tear down lgbtq flags and at the end of the day this is just simply about protecting people who want to live their life differently from you. In fact, if anything, as a libertarian or as a libertarian leaning conservative, you should actually be more sympathetic to the, to these people and less hostile to them. I, and, and I, I, maybe I haven't argued the entire argument because there's elements of like biology and then there's, yeah. a, there's elements of science in there and stuff like that. But this emotion based look, I just want to protect the people that I know that are gay or trans. Like that is the argument overwhelmingly that I see from Zoomers and millennials in part because a lot of Zoomers and millennials know somebody that identifies with that also in part because it's become a social contagion and now everybody's wanting to identify it, which is a whole nother debate in the future for yeah, another time. Yeah. But that makes it really difficult when you're like in my age group to engage with somebody like that, because yeah. they will make an argument. Well, I know somebody that's trans or I know somebody that's gay or I know somebody that's whatever it is. Yeah. And then at that point it becomes really, they, 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 Personal. they freeze it, they personalize it. And what can you do at that point? M most conservatives will just back down mm -hmm. or, or they'll flame out and, and, you know, blow up the situation one or the other. But a lot of times you get cowed into, into, backpedal and being like, well, hold on for a second. I don't hate trans people or I don't yeah. hate, like, because you're, you're subtly being accused of being a bigot. Yeah. Right. And you're also 
painting these people as complete victims that society's ganging up on. Yeah. That's the approach that you see a lot from Zoomers and millennials on the left on this topic. No, I, I thought you did a good job. I mean, right off the bat, it was like, this is just, how does it hurt anybody? This is just about this. Why are you picking on people that, and, and it's <laughs> part of the reason why it's interesting is because for, for people that are apparently being mercilessly picked on and, and brutalized within society, they have an entire month dedicated to our sexual preferences associated with them. You know, um, they're, they're universally celebrated within academia and entertainment and the arts and, and what not. So again, it's, it's a funny way to be oppressed when everyone is essentially cheering for you and, and changing the icons and their company logos, uh, for, for, you know, 30 days out of the year. Um, but having said that, this is another one of those areas where I always, I always tell people do not seed the moral high ground because once again, and oftentimes they're giving a caricature of the argument. So if someone says, you know, if someone puts this up, it's like, why are you just picking on these trans kids? And I'm like, Oh, 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 back up. No, I'm, I'm, I'm protecting them from you. That will, if, if you want to just really tear apart the sensibilities of a progressive, you, you tell them that the person they think they're defending, you're like, no, 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 you're not defending them. I'm trying to protect them from you. And like, how, how dare you? No, you're not. You're no. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. You're, you're you, the, the sort of argument you just made is the sort of person that would look at a girl with bulimia and say, yeah, no, you're right. If you identify this way, here's some diet pills. Let's do some liposuction surgery on you. You, you, would, you would chemically and surgically alter that kid to their own detriment in order to fuel their confusion. And I don't, I don't know what the motivation is behind that, but it, it cannot be pure. It, it, certainly, it certainly cannot come from a, a position of wanting what is best for that person because you're not affirming their gender. You're affirming their dysphoria. And I, and I don't wish any ill on that person, which is why I'm going to tell you, no, you don't get to give a 10 or 11 year old kid puberty blockers, which is going to fundamentally alter their entire natural development. No, you don't get to perform life altering surgery on a 16 or 17 year old because you've chemically altered them back here and you fed into the confusion that they're experiencing. No, you don't get to do that. And I'm not going to stand idly by why you, while you do it and pretend that simply because you slap a colorful flag on the side of it, it suddenly doesn't make it what it is, which is the chemical and surgical alteration of a minor who believes something which is factually incorrect. And I'm not going to play make-believe with you because for some reason, whatever the, the consolidation of political power or some sort of false savior complex or, or some sort of ridiculous dedication to a definition of inclusivity, which includes everything to include that which is fundamentally and obviously incorrect about reality. Me telling the person that if they jump off the building, they won't be able to fly. Yeah, that is an example of me not being inclusive of their wrong idea that gravity doesn't apply to them. But it's also an attempt to try to save their life because they're not viewing reality correctly and it's going to hurt them if they continue. Now, do, do I want to lock them up or punish them? No, I don't want to do any of that. I'm not advocating for the government to come in and punish people. But I'm also not going to sit there and use the government as an apparatus to punish other people who refuse to go along with the delusion. Because overall, it does impact me. But more than that, it impacts the person that you're doing this to, especially when they're a child.
And we make this distinction everywhere else in law, but not on this one. That same kid can't get a tattoo, can't get a cigarette, and, and can't even get an aspirin at a school without parental permission. But for some perverse reason, you can whisk them away and engage in this sort of activity in certain states in this country without parental permission. And you imagine that you're the good guy in this scenario. This is not the first time that governments have tried to step in between not abusive parents and their children, but just parents that weren't willing to go along with whatever the government narrative was. But I got news for you. The sort of governments that do this sort of thing, they're the parts of the history books you don't want to be associated with. And yet here you are. So no, you don't get to start off this conversation assuming you're the good guy, not with me. Because ultimately, I'm the one that's trying to protect a kid from what I believe to be an abusive and dangerous ideology. Now, when it comes to things like gay marriage, I'll tell you this right. I've said this on the House floor. And this is something that gets conservatives mad at me. I don't want the government defining marriage. Not because I don't believe that marriage is an incredibly important institution. I do, but because I believe the government screws it up. And it hasn't just screwed it up with respect to its overall definition. I think it's screwed it up with respect to the practices that they put in place, the legal practices they put in place, where they want to pretend it's a contract, but then it's a contract that, one, disproportionately adversely affects men on one side of it. And then on the other side that you can walk away from for whatever reason you want. And in fact, we incentivize, we incentivize in some cases women to walk away from marriage because we'll pay you if you do. So I believe that the government's, the government's interaction with marriage has been problematic for quite some time now. But if you're asking me to support a broadening of the definition of marriage to the point where it's indistinguishable from everything that it ever has been, no, I'm not going to agree with that. If you want to say, let's get the government out of it, and if you want to sign a contract with another human being, a consenting adult, you have the right to do so, okay, we can handle that under contract law. But no, I'm not going to sit there and go along with the delusion that, it's, that it fits my definition of marriage. And I'm not asking other people to accept my definition of marriage. So here's an idea. Don't ask me to accept yours. And we can all agree on what a civil contract is. But so, you know, right off the bat, again, the, the big thing I can't emphasize enough when we talk about this is do not cede the moral high ground. And, and, um, who was it? Gosh, who was it that recently, um, it was Yuri Bezmenov or whatnot, where he was talking about, uh, I, I, I can't remember what he was talking about, but he said, are, are you going to die for, you know, X, Y, and Z? He said, he, he, he wrote up on a chalkboard, two plus two equals four. And he said, that's true. There we go. That's true. How many of you are ready to say two plus two equals four and shoot me yeah, for I it? I'm die. ready to die for it. No. And then he did write on the board, he wrote Jesus Christ. And he's like, and yet millions are, are, are willing to lay down their life for this, which you cannot scientifically or mathematically prove. Yeah. You have to take it on faith. Now, I, I would argue that you don't have to completely take it on total it's not blind, blind faith. faith. Yeah. There's a difference there. But but the, the fact is, is that it, it's an entirely different category of belief than believing that two plus two equals four. Yeah. And yet people are willing to lay down their life for something is that they consider to be that serious. Yeah. Nobody, not even the mathematicians are willing to lay down their life for two plus two equals four. Yeah. Oh no, no. All right. We, so we're going to move to the, we're going to move this last category, which uh, again, a very good question from our audience member on, you know, how do you argue with somebody that, you know, doesn't want to engage in rational debate? Do you just walk away? We're going to, we're going to get to a couple of super chats and then we're going to, we're going to end on answering this question because like I said in the beginning, this is one of the most important things that we're going to explain today. And that is why sometimes the most important conversation that you have with somebody is actually with somebody that doesn't want to engage in rational debate. 
right? But there's certain conditions which make that an important conversation. We'll get to that in a second. First of all, Isaac Gorsky, I'll say it again. The price of liberty is virtue. We can argue all day about what liberty and freedoms mean, but we don't have the currency to pay it. I, Isaac, you're not wrong. Again, this 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 comes with the idea that um, if, if, uh, if human beings are incapable of appropriate social self-regulation, there's no amount of laws that are going to get them to, to do it. So there, there has to be some sort of moral code for which the, the vast majority of people within a society adhere to. Um, and if that is based solely off the ability of the government to be able to use force to implement it, they just they just don't possess the power. So no, you're you're right, Isaac Gorsky. Why should abortions be free and readily available while giving birth needs to be paid for? One is essential for human existence; the other is elective. No, no, you're you're right. And there was a comment earlier in the chat, like, oh, what what about the woman in Texas who needed an abortion to you know potentially save her health, and so she had to leave the state. Yeah, that is a horrible, I, I believe that is a horrible misrepresentation of what happened in Texas. You had a woman that was happy to get pregnant, was excited about being pregnant, and then at week 21, understood that her, her baby had, I think it's I think it's pronounced trisonomy 18, which is not Down syndrome, but it's similar. And it usually means that the child will not be able to live long outside the womb. And that's when she advocated to be able to get an abortion. She wasn't trying to abort the child because it was detrimental for her own health or even for her child's health. She was trying to abort it because she was going to have a disability. Right. And so she had to leave the state to do that. I'm sorry, I don't think that's an undue burden. But when we're talking about, you know, what we're going to pay for and what we're going to allow in a society, I, I think it's I think it's somewhat telling. I think it's somewhat telling that one of the most prominent arguments that I hear from certain progressives, not all, but certain progressives, is this idea, but oh, what about these children with these disabilities? Wow. Wow. Your eugenics is showing. The idea that a child with, with disabilities has nothing to contribute or no human value or even a diminished human value as a result of those disabilities, I find morally reprehensible and abhorrent. But it does provide some insight into the mindset, doesn't it? All right, Verity Johnson, uh, thank you very much for the super chat. My mom owns her own business. She works 60, 80 hours uh, weeks for almost 20 years, sometimes year round. She's earned every penny of what she's created. Verity, I could not agree more. We had somebody in the comments say, well, Nick, when 1% of the population controls 90% of the wealth, which by the way, is not an accurate reflection of what's actually controlled, but it is significant. They're like, of course they should pay more in taxes. And here's the argument I would make is a, they are B I, the problem, the problem that I have with the generalized argument about, well, the rich should pay more. Okay. They already are. That's just, that's just a reality. But the other thing to take into consideration here is there are some people like Verity just mentioned, and, and I, I'm not claiming your mom's rich, right? But there's some people like uh, Verity's mother who worked incredibly hard in order to build something that is hers and has probably had to pay a whole host of additional taxes that most people don't. Um, now, l let's say, for instance, that she is in the 1%. I'm not saying she is. I don't think she is, but let's say she is. No, it's not okay to just tax that per arbitrarily tax that person more um, on top of everything else they already pay because they're wealthy. It isn't. It just isn't. Now, if you want to argue that it's a practical consideration, okay, fine, I'll accept that. But I will not accept the fairness argument. I'm so tired of that. The other thing too is if you're upset about the people that have de deliberately manipulated politics that have acquired their wealth through cronyism and, and government subsidies and, and manipulation of the tax code, I don't mean legitimate use of the tax code, I mean manipulation of it or, or fraudulent use of it, fine, I'm, I'm there with you. My problem is not with wealthy people or poor people. My problem is with people who attempt to use government force and coercion to benefit themselves at the expense of others. You can do that as a poor person, you can do that as a rich person, but regardless of your economic income, 
If you're doing that, then yeah, we got a problem. By the same token, regardless of your economic income, you're working, you're, you're providing for yourself, you're trying to make something yourself, I, I hope you become fabulously wealthy. I hope you become fabulously wealthy. I, I think we have a tax system and I think, we have a, I think we have a moral code that informs our tax system, which is actually rooted in the same greed it purports to want to hurt or hinder. Okay, now let's get to, um, thank you very much to everyone for the super chats. Now let's get to this question. I'm going to reiterate it right here from, uh, gosh, you guys, man, your name's on this. Is it Gate, Gate X Rat? Close enough. You're killing me, guys. All right. Great question, though. When the other side doesn't accept rational logic for arguments, then how do you argue or do you even argue at that point? So here's what I'm going to tell you. Right up front, part of it depends on are you good at this? If you suck at arguing, then you, you probably need to get better at it before you, you attempt to go out there and be an advocate, especially if you're trying, if you're doing so in front of other people. And that is the condition, which is so important for our earlier statement. Some of the most productive arguments I have ever had have been with people who had, had no intention in engaging in anything resembling a logical or rational argument. And had it been just me and them, I probably would have walked away, but it wasn't. There was a lot of other people watching. Sometimes it was students. Sometimes it was other people in social media. Sometimes it was other people in the comments section. But oftentimes in that environment, when you are able to keep your composure and you're able to make logical, rational arguments and you're able to make effective emotional appeals, not emotional appeals devoid of reason, but based upon reason, based upon the very logical understanding that that which does not work well in reality hurts the very people that progressivism are oftentimes trying to help. But if you're arguing with somebody that just it, it, it engages in ad hominem attack or straw man arguments or just you know dripping with invective against you and you're able to keep calm, cool, collected, you're able to show an appropriate level of passion about the, the people that you care about and why these issues are important to you, you will be shocked at the number of people that will sit there and watch that and have their minds changed in part, not just because of what you said, but how you were able to conduct yourself in that argument in the face of unhinged animosity. And that's why I say those can be some of your most powerful moments if you can keep your crap together. And more and more, we're seeing people on the right, they're having a hard time keeping their crap together. We're seeing others that are a perfect example of it. Jordan Peterson. I mean, when you look at the when you look at the um, the interview that Jordan Peterson had with that British journalist, I can't remember who her what her name was, um, and she kept saying, "So what you're saying is," and then she would deliberately misrepresent what Jordan Peterson was saying. And at no point did he he flip out or yell or storm out or throw his mic or any of that. No, he would challenge her presuppositions. He he would he would come back and and clearly, concisely, and articulately described what he was saying. And then he would also explain why it was important for people, why it wasn't just some sort of esoteric point he was making or some sort of philosophical game he was trying to play, right? That this wasn't just a, a case of, of who's more, who has greater intellectual prowess. He was tying it back to the people he was trying to help. That is what blasted Jordan Peterson into the, into the stratosphere because people saw that argument and saw what that journalist was attempting to do. She wasn't being honest. She wasn't engaging in rational debate. She was trying to completely misrepresent what that man had to say and turn him into a bad guy. She didn't want to just hurt his arguments. She was trying to hurt him. She was trying to hurt his reputation, 
not just as an intellectual, but as a decent human being. And he crushed it in his responses. And I guarantee you, there were a lot of people that saw clips from that, didn't even see the entire interview, saw clips from that and thought, whoa, that guy just said something in a way that I've always felt, but have never been able to articulate. But say outside, outside of having someone with an agenda that was desperately trying to, to engage in, in, I would say, underhanded tactics for what should have been a productive conversation, without that environment, you might not have been able to see Jordan Peterson shine in the face of that kind of adversity. And it was ability to do that that led other people to say, this guy's interesting. I want to hear what he has to say in other environments, which might not be as intriguing, which might not have the same clickable capability. But because this guy has been able to demonstrate that in the, in the face of hostility, he's performed well and rationally and reasonably. I want to hear what else he has to say. So don't ever underestimate that sometimes the most, the most important audience is not the person you're debating with, but everyone else watching the debate take place. But how you conduct yourself, both intellectually, emotionally, in that moment, is going to say a lot more about what you believe and going to indicate to people a lot more about whether or not they should listen to you than sometimes a, a thousand friendly conversations. Sometimes the only way the distinction can truly be made is in the face of adversity. It's in the face of, of absolute hostility. And that's why it's important to take the time to look through these things, look through these arguments, look through the research. Not to say that you got to be a subject matter expert on everything, but understand what you believe. And here's the two things that I would, actually the three things that I would ask you to consider when you're, when you're going to engage in a particular topic that you think might be controversial. And it's the holiday season, right? We got friends and family coming over and stuff like this might happen and you don't want to be the one to destroy Christmas, all right? So... First and foremost, think of a way to personalize the values that you're trying to convey. And you can personalize that through your own experience, through the experience of someone that you know, that you care about. But, but figure a way to put a human face on what you're saying so this isn't just a philosophical exercise. Secondly, make sure that you're not overly reliant on the emotional, right? Don't leave out the emotional, that's important. But make sure that it's a logically consistent argument and that it actually makes sense, right? Before you ever get to the stats or the figures or the facts or what, does this logically make sense? What sort of, what sort of incentive structures are created by the, the policies that we're talking about? Does it make sense? Does it hold up under rigorous logical scrutiny? And then third, if you want to, you don't even need to for a lot of things, but if you want to, that's the part where you can start to look at helpful statistics or instances or figures or whatnot. The reason why I say that's that's the third thing you want to worry about is because, you know, I think it was was it Mark Twain that had a um, Mark Twain that had a statement. There's there's three types of uh, um, three types of lies: lies, damn lies, and statistics. And it's because you can always manipulate data to, to come to a conclusion you want. And so if you first understand that the conclusion that you've come to is logical and actually plays out then you can start to also find empirical evidence in order to support that position as well. And, and again, these things are not mutually exclusive, but I, but I always say you, you can, you can justify, you can justify a lot of really bad ideas with really bad data. So test it logically. And then, and then also look at the, look at the research, look at stuff that you trust, look at people that, you know, uh, think critically, think logically and, and look at those arguments and apply them. And, and, and if you do that, and if you're engaging, the other thing that I would ask you to do or ask you to consider is a lot of times when you get in these, these conversations and you, you saw every progressive argument that we made are ones that I, I think 
are ones that a progressive would have heard without knowing us and thought, yeah, that guy gets it. But then we sat there and we broke down what we were actually doing. We, we told you which parts were gimmicky, which parts were advertising. We told you how we were conflating one thing with another thing. And so one of the best ways that you can sometimes get that out is to ask questions. You said this, what did you mean by that? You said this, what do you mean by that? Force them to explain what they mean. Don't just let everyone just assume that you know or understand. Force them to explain it. Because that's a lot of times when you're going to find people that when you open them up within their own presuppositions, all of a sudden they start to realize that maybe they have a problem with what they said. Or maybe it's not as clear as they once envisioned when they just regurgitated whatever they heard in their sociology class. So all of these things are the, the advice that I think we would, uh, we would offer on, on how to be able to engage in, in productive conversations um, with people that want to have them, but also to be able to engage in conversations which do produce good results for an audience, maybe with somebody that is openly hostile, hostile and, and not willing to engage in a sound debate. And again, the most important thing when you're talking about the holidays, just remember why you're all there together. Um, there's probably not going to be a single debate that you have on the holidays uh, that is worth destroying a relationship. Now, I'm not saying that you don't engage. I'm just saying that my wife had a rule for us when we got married very young and uh, 19 and 20 and had some you know arguments and whatnot. Her only rule was, baby, I'll listen to your argument. Just make sure you always remember you're talking to the woman that you love. And when you can do that and you can remember that you're talking to somebody that you truly care about, um, that will oftentimes help you to kind of take it a step back and realize that sometimes, especially in some of these arguments, what people are doing is not advocating for a policy as much as they are trying to make sense of a world that is confusing them. And a confused person can lash out and can say some things that they don't really mean. And if you provide them a soft place to land and they know that in the day, the reason why you're having this discussion is not because you want to beat them in an argument, but because ultimately you do want the best for them and you truly care about them. You won't always see the fruit of that right up front, but a lot of times it'll come back later when they're willing to tell you that, you know what, it was that moment where I started to realize you really cared and I started listening. So definitely don't lose that opportunity just to win an argument. All right. Thank you very much. We also, again, want to thank Good Ranchers. Please go check that and keep in mind, what, what is it? 12, tomorrow? Tomorrow, Hamilton is when that deal goes into effect? Yes, sir. All right, great deal with those gift boxes. Goes into effect. 15% off the gift boxes. Goodranchers.com. Use promo code Nick. You can get some good deals there. Uh, do some, some last-minute Christmas shopping. And uh, once again, thank you very much, and we will see you next episode.